This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay talk with Jay Robbins of Jawbox and Burning Airlines. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. It's episode 247, season 5. And this week we are joined by musician and producer Jay Robbins of such bands as Jawbox and Burning Airlines. Well, thanks for um, for for coming on, and um, thank you for inviting me. This is uh, we've had a list of like people we wanted to reach out to for like we've been doing the show now. This is like our fifth season, and um, I think we just weren't ready. I think we would have e- we emailed you like first season. But we were like, I don't, we're not good enough to do that yet. We gotta like <laughs> we gotta get some years under the belt before we can. I got a lot. I got a lot of uh invested in on these albums so i i can't just i can't do this unprepared or uh or uh um that's well you'll, so we're you'll reco- see <laughs> <laughs> we're recording so this doesn't go live until next tuesday so if okay. you need to stop or you know okay. whatever yeah, we, the only we may we may be interrupted just because um i'm i have uh my i'm um i put my son to bed about an hour ago, well, about 40 minutes ago, mm-hmm. and sometimes he calls me. So mm-hmm. that's about the only interruption that we might I, have. I just, but... I just paid one of those visits 10 minutes ago. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. I, I, I got 10 minutes on why she didn't want to go to school tomorrow. And, and, I'm, and I'm back. How old? Uh, she's five. She just started oh. kindergarten. So. Oh, man, wait until, wait until fourth grade, because like nine years old, 10 years old is like the age of, of um, like not only... Like my son Callum, like he'll he'll give a um, it's like a dissertation on why it would be good for him not to go to school. <laughs> like it's like a very yeah. detailed, yeah. And you respect the debate. You're like, ah, oh, you make some right. fine it's, points it's, there, but yeah, you can't. Like, <laughs> no, it's true. You do. You have to respect the debate. So it's yeah. like, but you know, hopefully, hopefully, it won't get, you know, I won't get that. I'll probably just and, and fourth know. grade is when it starts getting hard. At least that's what I remember. Like. <sighs> Masters and you have to start writing papers and stuff. At least that's what I remember. Right. It's a lot more like school. I can tell already. It's much more like school than third grade. Yep. Hmm. Well, I don't, I'm, I'm behind both of you. I have a three-year-old, so I got, uh, I don't even have school stuff to talk (laughs) about yet. It's still daycare and those sorts of things. We're still, we're still working through, uh, making sure dinner time (laughs) happens. Right. Right. No, no, I, I, Enjoy it, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it's about to get real over here. It's like it's getting, pretty, you know, it just gets more and more real. It's insane. All right, it's well, like, on Dadcast, we're uh... <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the, you know, the human race. I mean, it's yeah. eternal, eternal stuff, eternally val, uh, eternally relevant stuff. So let me ask you, um, and this was not something I'd pre- I'd prepared, but um, I-, I had no 
like plans when I was back in my 20s being a musician and thinking down the road like, oh, I'm going to definitely be married and have a kid and live in a house in the suburbs and that kind of stuff. And were you always like, yeah, at some point that that's going to happen or... No, no, I was, like... I was adamant that none of this would ever happen. Okay. <laughs> I was quite sure that, you know, I mean, I believed that I would, you know, I hoped that I would fall in love and, you know, have a a, a long-standing relationship with somebody, but I I was against the institution of marriage and, you know, but, um, you know, like the whole thing, like, like, why would I own a house? Like everything. And, um, but it so happens that there's this mechanism that, there's a, a recurring mechanism in my life, which is the thing that I think I don't want to do that it seems like I have to be kind of dragged into mm. almost always turns out to be the rewarding thing that I definitely should have done. Mm. So once I started, once that, once I started noticing this pattern, uh, then that sort of changed my, you know, it changed my thinking. Like it was, you know, I mean, it's, well, of, w of which these are these are really the main examples, like getting married. You know, when I met my wife, I was just like, there came a there came a crucial point where I was like, oh my god, I have no like it's weird. Like I just got struck by lightning. I was like, I, I have to propose. So, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, and that's the kind of that's the kind of mechanism. It wasn't like I, you know, like I had no ambition except to as a as a kid and a teenager and stuff. Like all I ever wanted to do was just make stuff you know, either like draw, do like draw, create art, make music, go see the world and experience things. And that, that literally is the extent of my, was the extent of my ambition. Doesn't it start um, to make sense at some point? Like to me, when I was young, like marriage didn't make sense and having kids, like it just was like, I can't even fathom those sorts of things. But then, like you said, when you meet that, like one person and, and the, the light switch goes off, like, yeah, marriage kind of I I kind of get it now like or buying a house yeah, like no, I never wanted to buy weird, a house. Well, buying a house is a, a terrible idea. <laughs> like, I don't I don't I mean, but that's like we shouldn't talk about that. But <laughs> but uh um but I mean, it is one of those weird things and it feels really stupid to say it. I feel like an old guy when I say it that like like you don't really understand the difference until you're there. Mm -hmm. And then what and then you and then you're like you literally do feel different, you know, but I mean, this is like a really heavy, <laughs> this is a very heavy subject. It's a really, it's one, it's one of the big, you know, cause you, you know, the great, I mean, I don't know that you necessarily want to go there, but I feel, I feel like the, uh, um, you know, you learn, it's, it's like one of the ways that you like, it's like you reach all the, many times in your life, you reach these points where you like, you've, you kind of feel like you've um, not like you've got everything figured out, but you're like, yeah, I'm in a groove. This is about right. And then you realize that actually you have like vastly huge opportunities to learn things that you didn't even really understand mm -hmm. you needed to learn. And that is totally what like marriage is just like that over and over and over again. And it's really awesome. If it, you know, I mean, I've certainly known people for whom it was not awesome including my parents, which is part of the reason why I never, I, w I was just like, one thing I will never do is, you know, endorse the institution, institution of marriage. And I'm not religious either. So I don't have that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I don't really have that pushing me, but it was definitely the right thing. So, you know, but anyway, how's, that's, how's that changed your sort of relationship or 
point of view or focus on music? Uh, well, hugely in the sense that I, I once, um, once I got married, I, I had a different, I had like, I, I used to just really want to be on tour all the time. I mean, I love being on tour. It's one of the best things that, that, that doing music can, can bring into your life. You know, it's like, like I was used to, I've always said for a long time, having a band was like this engine that could take you to different experiences that you wouldn't have otherwise. So, I mean, like I traveled all over Europe and I went to Japan twice and, you know, just places that I wouldn't have had, you know, I mean, I'm, I have really like, uh, you know, like when I, when I grew up, I mean, my dad was a car salesman. Like we didn't, I'm not like from, I never had a lot of money. So it's not like I could have gone jet setting around the world ever or been like, oh, I think I'd like to go to Japan. You know, like I might dream of it, but it, playing music, the fact that playing music brought me to like, I mean, it's because of playing music that I met my wife. My wife is from um, Great Britain and we met in London. So, I mean, I always really, really loved it. I never really had a, a strong feeling of like homesickness, but, um, you know, particularly after getting married, I really started to feel like, wow. I'm, I'm actually away from something that I, you know, I'm away from, from a place and a way of being that I really want to be present mm -hmm. for. So, um, so it really changed my, it changed my attitude a lot over and over time. Like, I feel like it's gotten more. And especially since my son was born, um, to like, I just don't really, I mean, I love traveling and being on tour, but like, there's no way I can't imagine a circumstance that where like, like a six week tour would appeal to me or mm -hmm. a four week tour even, you know, like, like a week and a half is cool, but it's not really in my, you know, I kind of feel like apart from, uh, you know, if I had a chance to go someplace really cool or go back to Europe or go to Japan again, or, you know, go to Brazil or something, I think it would be one thing, but, um, you know, truck stop America, I kind of feel like I've seen, you know, not that it, not to denigrate like going and playing shows in America, but for me, I'm kind of like it, I, it would need to be like, I'd need to feel like it was a special thing, you know? Isn't that a different experience that though now, because now, you know, when you're on tour in, in the nineties, you're in a van or a bus, I guess, depending on what, what level you're yeah, at. We, and... you know, we never, that was like our big regret. We never got a bus. Oh. <laughs> we, we were always like, we were too frugal. We were always like, we're not going to be like those other bands. We're going to, we're going to manage our, our, uh, spending. So we don't look like these profligate, you know, <laughs> now I'm like, why didn't we get a bus? <laughs> but anyway, but so sorry, good not to interrupt. No, but you had to, you know, you had to travel with maps. You had to have a, an Atlas oh, with yeah. you. Now it's, yeah. you, you can map the whole thing on your phone. You can have FaceTime or, or Skype with your family back home. Like the, the road is a l little less disconnected, I guess. Um, no, I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's true. And and actually a reoccurring theme with people we've we've talked to this year it, that have been in bands that have either gotten back together or or they've just been continually playing music is that when they're in a situation where they do have a family or they do have obligations at home, they tend to just limit it to like two weeks at a time. Oh, and yeah. I mean, there's ways to do it for sure. Are Do you have I, I know that. So the last new music that I found um, that you had put out was the Abandoned Mansions uh, EP. Yes. Yeah, and that was last year, I think. Uh, I had mm -hmm. one new song, and then you did some like reinterpretations acoustically of some of uh, previous material. Do you yeah. have plans to either do 
something like that again or, or just do new material at all? Um, I have good intentions, but it really is, it's all about managing my time at this point. Cause, um, I mean, my kind of full time, my energies are mostly, you know, I mean, uh, I have a recording studio and that's really what I do. I mean, that's how I make my living such as it is, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of the main I mean, most of my energy goes to keeping the studio going, doing projects. um, And then obviously, you know, I have like, there's like my home life, which is huge. And then, um, so I have to carve out time to make music, to make my own music around that. And I'm, and it's like a a perpetual challenge, you know? So, I mean, I, I'm actually, I, the, um, my wife is actually away visiting her family in England uh, for two weeks now. And so that's cool for me because I get to hang out with my son, but also because, um, my son is in a power chair and there's a whole sort of special set of circumstances around his disability. Um, I kind of, it's really like full time kind of, you know, being like, I'm a stay at home dad. I can't do really anything but be, you know, with him, but he goes to school in the mornings and then he's down, you know, he's in bed by like, 830. So I've tried to make like, this is my time where I'm working on music like every day. So, um, I'm trying to put that into the schedule cause I go crazy if I can't write music. Um, but as far as having a, you know, I mean, I, the, my plans, my plans are really loose, but I want to do, um, I want to record a little bit more of the acoustic stuff because, um, that's something that I, I mean, I've been out playing acoustic shows for a couple of years now. And I even did a little tour. I did like a short tour with Jonah Matranga, um, last year, which was super fun on the East coast. Um, so, um, and playing acoustic is really, it's rewarding on a lot of levels. I really like, I really love it. And I really loved kind of reclaiming, not reclaiming, sort of reclaiming those songs, you know, sort of saying, because I really missed singing and playing them in it. And it just doesn't seem like the um, prospects for Jawbox to play them ever again. I mean, those prospects are very, very, I mean, they're practically non-existent. So, but I thought, you know, there are some songs that I still have a strong feeling about and I wanted to sing them. So I thought, Oh, I can kind of repurpose them and do them this way. And, um, and, uh, and it's really, I really, really enjoy it. So, I want to do, and what's cool, what's cool is, so I did the, I did the Bandcamp EP, um, just because it was kind of no, it was like a no stress way of documenting that. And then I thought, oh, and then if people want to buy it, it's like, whatever, 99 cents a song, that's pretty normal. And it's just super low key. It just kind of exists. And then if you want to access it, you can, um, but, um, Arctic Rodeo, the German label um, that I have a really good relationship with, they said they'd be interested in releasing vinyl. So I'm going to do maybe another five songs, maybe even this this week. Um, and then hopefully that'll be a record. So, But it is mostly old stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's the pace of me writing new songs, like lyrics especially, is just like glacial because it's really, it's like, it's, I don't know how to do it without 
sort of torturing myself in the process. I can write music all day long, but writing lyrics is really slow. So, um, so anyway, I don't know how much new material there will, there will be in that, but then, um, um, I have a band now nominally called office of future plans. And, um, we, we put out an album, uh, on discord at the end of 2011 and another EP a couple years ago. Um, but we parted ways with our drummer and our drummer was kind of like the whole, the whole thing is sort of in limbo. Like, like I have new band songs, um, and I'm writing more kind of band material, but I'm just very slow to figure out what, what it is now. Like, like, um, myself and the bass player and the, the cellist slash guitarist are all still playing together. And, um, so we're, we're working on stuff, but I'm not sure that we feel like we can call it office of future plans because it's like that thing about, you know, one person leaves the band. We haven't figured out if it still seems like the same band with playing with a, a different drummer. So, um, so I don't really know what it's going to be, but I'm definitely, it's, we, it's really weird. I feel really productive. I feel like I'm, I've got this because my, my brain is so engaged with it. I feel like I'm really engaged with music making, but as far as anybody else in the world knows, like I'm, I am not doing anything, <laughs> you know, but it's a really, it's sort of a really productive time. It's just, there's a logistical component to it. A lot of few logistical aspects. So that's a long winded answer, but <laughs> you, you hit on something interesting there with the, the notion of the drummer, uh, being a big part of defining the band. I think you're probably in the minority there. Um, <laughs> well, but I, but the thing is like, like there, there's a lot of bands that have, I mean, it's a weird thing. I've, I mean, I think about this all the time and I've, I've, I mean, I'm, I'm really fortunate because I've always played with drummers who, who's play, who have a strong personality as musicians and a strong aesthetic. And I don't think I would be that interested in playing with a drummer who just went boo-ta, boo-ta-ba, boo-ta, boo-ta-ba. You know, like just a normal, like straight up backbeat rock drummer. Mm -hmm. it, it's, you know, I like a lot of music like that, but I don't feel like, um, I feel like I would get bored making just that kind of music. I want it needs to be a little more, the rhythm section needs to really do something to, to um, make the song richer. So what, it, what's ended up happening is that like, I, you know, I play, I'm really lucky. I've played with, you know, at least three drummers who were just like really phenomenal and had really strong personalities. And it's funny cause sometimes I've jammed with like, like when Jawbox ended, um, we jammed once with, uh, Pete Moffat, who was, a uh, who was a drummer that I played with in government issues. And then we played together in, in burning airlines. My, my second, my first band after Jawbox. Pete's like a really, really old friend of mine. And he's, a, he's a phenomenal musician. And when he, you know, we thought for a minute when, um, when Zach, when Jawbox was ending, the first thing that happened was Zach said, I'm going back to school. And then the rest of us said, Oh, well maybe we should see if Pete wants to play drums and we can kind of carry on in a less active way, but we can keep on going. 
and we jammed with Pete and it was so weird to hear like, you know, he learned all of Zach's parts and it's like, if you wrote it out, like on a page, if you wrote it out, like, like music, all the hits were in the right places, but his feel as a drummer, like Zach's feel is so idiosyncratic that Pete and Pete's feel is so unique to Pete. It's like, it just sounded really wrong, even though it was sort of technically right. We were like, whoa, nope, I guess it's not going to happen. And, and that's happened, you know, a couple of times where like I've jammed with Zach a couple of times and we've just sort of gone through, you know, we've played just whatever songs from other bands that I've been in and to hear Zach play stuff that Pete wrote or, um, stuff that Darren, the, the drummer of, um, of Office of Future Plans, you know, like it's, it's, it's actually mad. It's frustrating on one level because I, you know, if there are songs I want to play, like I want them, I want to just be able to play them. But the fact is, you know, there's this like special character that doesn't really always cross over. And like Office of Future Plans played Savory once or twice, the Jawbox song Savory. And I thought, no big deal. But Darren was like, <clears throat> I got to really prep for this. And because the composition of the drum parts were just, there's just something unique to Zach about the feel or where he would, the way he wrote for the ride symbol or whatever it was. Darren had to like take a deep breath and really get his head around it. So, I mean, you know, it's not like, I mean, I think that's, I think that, you know, like I said, there's a practical level on which maybe it's frustrating because, you know, but then really actually not, it's actually really magical because it's like, it's like the, you know, I really love it when people play and you really hear them, like you hear, they play like who they are. And I've, I'm super lucky that I've played with people who are, who, for whom that's true, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's loads of bands where, yeah, you know, like, I mean, I wouldn't have thought like, um, like ACDC couldn't replace their drummer, you know, but they did. But I mean, at the end of the mm-hmm. day, everybody grew up learning to play ACDC songs. So maybe it wasn't that hard, you know, like, well, you can, even uh, with them, you can tell the difference, you know, mm-hmm. even though, so those, those songs are so simple, but mm-hmm. I could tell you if you played a live ACDC track, I could tell you which drummer it is, you know, even though it's exactly the same beat, but right. the feel is totally different. Um, yeah, that's exactly exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the same thing with Charlie Watts. I mean, right. a lot of people try to play Rolling Stone songs, but because of the way that Charlie Watts plays, he, I, you know, there was a book um, that came out. Uh, Bill Genovitz of Buffalo Tom wrote it. It's called like the 50 tracks that um, define the Rolling Stones, like 50 tracks for 50 years or something like that. And he talks about how. Um, on Exile on Main Street, there are a lot of songs where it sounds like he is playing up tempo, but if you try to play it the way that he's playing it, you'll play it way too fast because he's dragging so much on a lot of the parts that mm-hmm. it's just so unique to his style that so many drummers can't quite get it right. They get close, but they can't quite match what he's doing. And I think that's that's really what um when I was mentioning earlier about us having to build up to this discussion, 
Um, the the third and fourth Jawbox records, and then the first two Burning Airlines records, to me are like have some of the most amazing drums and and drum playing and parts of anything that came out in the nineties or the early two thousands. Um, and I'm curious about when you're playing with drummers that are that dynamic and that, you know, unique, are you writing to them or are they writing those parts to what you are writing? Um, it's kind of all of the above. Okay. That's what, that's, what's been pretty cool in, there's never been, I don't think in any there's no, in in any band that I've ever been I don't think there's ever been like one one way you know one method of writing songs you know there's always been it's always been kind of all over the place and like with with Zach in particular um like Pete tends to write to like you would bring the song or you'd at least bring some parts that work together and then kind of you know give him an, a vague outline about, you know, feel or like, oh, this, you know, it'd be cool if this was really busy or it'd be really cool if this was like, can you, what about a dance, can you do a dance hall beat, you know, or something like that. But um, with Zach, like Zach spends a lot of time just playing and he's really compositional. He just, he composes beats and that's what he does. So a lot of times in Jawbox, you know, I'd go down in the basement because I'd hear him working on a beat and then I would either have something, some kind of half-baked idea already, or Bill would have something kind of in the hopper that he could, you know, kind of make it work. Either one of us could kind of make it work with what Zach was already doing. Um, and then we just kind of, we wrote a lot of, a lot of our best stuff around Zach's beats because his beats were just like, I mean, you just hear it and go, wow, <laughs> you know? And, um, you know, but there are a few songs that, um, you know, I always used to try and write these kind of like Bob Mould inspired sort of guitar anthems. And I kind of, in retrospect, it's nice because the, the best ones got through the Zach filter. I could just show it and like, and we would just play it like a song. Everybody would just kind of understand how things should go and that they fit together. Um, but I wrote a lot of stuff that was just like, you know, right hand strumming, rang, dang, digga, da, dang, da, dang. And Zach would just shut me down right away, you know, just be like, I'm not, I'm not going to play like that. You know, he would play his way. And then, and it was really, really good because I went and also the, in combination with um, having a second guitar, what it did to me was it ended up forcing me into this more melodic role as a guitar player and trying to trying to it made me pay attention to like what grooves are in a you know like what is it what is a groove like what can we do with a groove um and then also um you know what can i do in a in a in a context of you know this this kind of drumming that's already like if you just listen to like we could have just released those records as just drums you know and they would have been i would listen to them i'd be like listen to these awesome drums, you know? <laughs> um, so, uh, so it was really great, like super great growth experience, but, but we really did write like every which way Kim would bring a baseline and Zach would start jamming to it. Or, you know, I tend to write not so much riffs, but like progressions. And then, 
or just melodies, like melodies with an idea of the progression, either a vocal melody or, or something on the guitar, and an idea of how it would be underpinned harmonically. Um, but like, I can't really write riffs. I'm, a ter- I'm terrible at writing riffs. So, uh, so we didn't do, but Bill was pretty good with riffs. So it was just like everybody, you know, we were just kind of like trying out everything. And that's basically been true. It's only more for me, like more recently that I've tried to, like, I'm way more, I've been way more interested in trying to write songs that could be played in any arrangement. Cause I feel like that's a stronger structural underpinning for a song. But then to me, like now I'm, now I'm kind of screwed because because I've sort of come to this realization that, you know, it's this wonderful realization that music can literally be anything. It really doesn't fucking matter. Like all you have to do is like believe in one thing that's happening, and the music can take care of itself. If if there's like trust among the players or one thing that you feel invested in, like, I mean, the music can literally be anything. But what's important is like what I am trying to communicate to you. So it, it boils down to the lyrics. So I'm fucked. <laughs> you know? I wanted to drill down on a couple of these songs because some of them I've, they've just been in my brain for the last 15 or or 20 years or whatever <laughs> it's been. So I've had questions about certain things and I don't know how much memory you have on sp- specific little things I'm going to nerd out on, but it seemed like your guitar playing and your overall like approach sort of expanded a little bit when you went to burning airlines. And what I mean is like on the first record, mission control, a song like scissoring mm-hmm. is built around harmonic, like pin, is it pinched harmonics? Is that the correct term yeah. or is it just, no, they're just harmonics, just harmonics. Yeah. That to me is in, it's crazy. I mean, that's a song where the verses are harmonics. And then I think the choruses are like distorted harmonics. It sounds like, or am I uh, off they're on that? the same? They're just different. They're just different harmonics. That it's just a it's just a change like the big change between the verse and the chorus is just it's literally this is like the most normal key change ever because it's like I can't remember what key it is but it's like it's literally like going from the verse is a you know the verse like kind of centers around a and then ooh look out here comes the chorus it's d <laughs> you know like it's one of those it's it's actually like a really simple song. anything you know it was but only like do the chiming stuff because i don't know it's it's like it's like those sounds are already there in the strings you know what i mm-hmm. mean you just gotta kind of kind of find them but it's not the same as like grabbing and making a chord I, I mean it's that's uh i mean i think that would that was the idea like i had a real desire to not uh for like for a long time i really wanted 
I was like, I wish there was a way that this guitar could just like make sound come out of it without me having to get in there and fuck everything up, you know, by actually like fretting a note like, oh, God, you know. So it really was like like this kind of like weird uh, uh, emotional like relationship to to making music where I'm like trying to like make the thing happen without, you know, I'm trying to like choose from things that are already there instead of um, instead of like exercising my willpower in this like brutal way of actually you know playing a chord it's i mean it doesn't make any sense i know it sounds like completely mental but um but i mean in harmonics sounds so cool so that's the other part of it well they used to get used as like an accent or something in a song but to actually build an entire song or at least a verse in a chorus at the well there's there's a few like actually i just learned um you know the uh the big boys um do you remember that band, Austin? Austin kind of skate band from the eighties. Jay, you're in Austin. <laughs> I, just, I just moved here a year ago. <laughs> oh no way! Well, Big Boy's a really huge band for me. Like, really, I had their records, you know, when I was a teenager, and I really love the Big Boys. They're amazing. But they have they have a song. I just learned it the other day. Um, what the hell is it called now? Oh, self contortion. Guitar part is all harmonics. And there's a couple hmm. of, uh, uh, in the chorus, he, he plays a little melody, but like, otherwise it's just like, and they're not even like weird, har- when they're, they're not obscure harmonics. They're like, you know, really like, I mean, they're the harmonics everybody knows, but he just plays them. It's just the right thing. It's cool as hell. And then, uh, uh big black had a bunch of songs that were kind of, you know, har- mm-hmm. big black was a pretty big influence on me too. When I was a teenager, and there are a lot of what his, um, a lot of his guitar parts were written around, around harmonics as opposed to, you know, chords. So that's probably the influence for sure. I mean, I mean, it is definitely the influence. Um, so you didn't work with um, Steve Albini on any records, right? No, uh, I was always scared to work with Steve Albini because I kind of idolized him, um, and I thought, well, if, if if I get the feeling that Steve Albini thinks my band is dumb, I'm just going to be crushed. And he always seemed like mm. the kind of guy who like you would, my, this is like my impression at a remove, you know, it's just like, like he doesn't suffer fools. So I'm like, mm-hmm. if I, if I'm a fool and Steve Albini doesn't suffer me, I'm going to be really bummed out. But whereas like we knew, um, Bob Weston, um, Kim and I were both really big volcano sons fans and like, she had known, I mean, we both known Bob for a long time. So we did one, we did one session, um, at Steve Albini's house with Bob Weston engineering. Cause we figured like Bob knows all Steve's tricks, but we know Bob's a total sweetheart. So we're not going to feel like any kind of weird vibe about, about working with him. But I don't, you know, I don't know if any of that stuff is true about Albini. I mean, I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's great because he's professional. I'm sure he's awesome to work with, you know, but at the time I was like real, I was a very uptight uh, young adult. <laughs> so <laughs> he seems to have a lot of bark, but um, he also seems to, you know, like we've had, uh, we knew some guys in a band here. I'm in Columbus. Jay used to be in Columbus, Ohio. And um, they went out and recorded with him because he has that thing where like he'll take on like pretty new, un- unknown bands for relatively cheap. Mm-hmm. And, um, they didn't have anything but nice things to say. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's awesome. In terms of now, I'm turn this back on you because you've actually produced a band from Columbus that we're friends with. 
mm-hmm. um, called Brand of Sound mm-hmm. uh, yeah. back uh, years ago. Have you been in that position where people have approached you to do a record and then you found out that they were maybe intimidated to do so at first that because, you know, you have this history with Jawbox and this history with Burning Airlines and lots of other bands that you've ever had, you've ever faced that sort of an issue? No, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I've, I'm, I'm, it's thrilling to me that anybody, you know, knows or cares about anything that I've done musically. And I definitely like it. It's, it's cool to me to think that, you know, like, like I've, I've been involved in records because people, you know, liked Jawbox and stuff. And I, you know, but, uh, but I never, I don't really think like, I'm not really an, I'm not really an intimidating guy, (laughs) you know? Um, so so I mean I don't I don't yeah I don't really think that's ever been a thing that I'm that I'm aware of you know so and and it's always I always just I like it I like it when the I like it when my role is clear you know so usually if somebody contacts me about making a record I'm I'm sort of like you know I'm like do you want me to you know are you thinking of me as a as a producer where you want my musical input on this and you want, you know, somebody to bounce ideas off of because usually it's not that hard to sort of come up with feedback about things. You know, if I, and if I hear something, uh, you know, about a song arrangement or something like that, then, you know, I'm, if, if I'm invited in that way, I'm happy to offer whatever I have to say. And I don't really have, most of the time I don't really have an ego about, about like, you know, Oh, well my way is the right way. Every now and then, like I might hear something where I'm just like, why don't you do it this way? You know, instead of the way you're doing it, there's this other way that would have so much more impact and I'll really try and sell it, you know, but I mean, it's not at the end of the day, it's not my record. It's just, I'm just lucky that I'm a participant. So I'm, I'm really trying to make the record that the band wants to make. And that's what it, that's how it should be, you know? So, and I, I mean, I think, you know, yeah. So if a band just want, well, let me, let me go back on that a little bit. Um, when did you decide you wanted to start producing bands? Um, uh, probably, I mean, I remember being really psyched on the recording studio, even like when, um, when I played bass in government issue, like in, you know, in 19, 19- 86, you know, through 89, I guess it was. And the times that we would go in the studio, I was just like, man, I never want to leave this place, you know, but it was a much more vague kind of feeling, but like that whole sense of like the whole, the whole experience of setting the drums up in this room and hearing how they translated into the speakers and hearing how the instruments came through and, and, you know, playing the song and, and, you know, when do you know you've got to take and the whole, the whole thing, and then feel, you know, having it, the things that you have, the parts that you have to assemble to make the whole thing, watching it come to fruition, that's just like endlessly compelling for me. So, um, so I've always been the guy in the band who would kind of like look over the engineer's shoulder and go like, oh, why'd you put that mic there? You know, well, why wouldn't, you know, what, what about that mic? What about putting it in that place? You know, what, and, um, 
and I love listening to records that way, like, like, you know, listening in headphones and especially things about spatially things that happen in a, in a recording that make the song into like a little world that you're in, you know, um, I've always really, really loved that. So even whether it's like some kind of real phantasmagorical kind of Sergeant Peppers type production, or just like that, that feeling of being in a, in a, in a space with the band playing, you know, that you get from Albini's recordings, I just, or like orchestra recordings too. Like you listen to orchestra recordings with headphones and you can see that the violins are, are on your left. You can, you know, hear where like the French horns are coming out from the back and stuff. And it's just like, you know, and then thinking about, well, why did the composer, you know, why is the orchestration this way? You know, what, uh, even in this, even in that like real, real, um, cartoonish, like Peter and the wolf kind of way, you know, where you're like, uh Oh, here comes the wolf and it's the French horns, you know, and it's that sound. So, I mean, um, I've always just been super into that. So, uh, there, but there came a point where, uh, I remember we got a bunch of recording equipment. I had actually heard when I was working at discord, um, doing like basically just answering, answering letters, answering discord fan mail, kind of, I remember hearing nation of Ulysses demos that Tim green had recorded. And like the, you know, the fact that they, and they were just four track recordings, just like cassette four track. But the fact was they had this little four track studio in their basement and they took it seriously and they were recording all the time. And, and whether they, whether it sounded good or not really didn't matter. The fact was they were making it happen. They were like documenting their ideas and they were demoing and they could hear things back. And, you know, so that was like a little switch going off in my head where I was like, God, we got to do that. We should, why don't we do that? We should totally do that all the time. And, um, so we set up a studio in our basement and, um, in our basement of our group, you know, band house. And then, um, and then the gear was all there and we just got good at, you know, Bill and I got particularly good at, at, at using it. But, you know, I was, I was the guy who just started, you know, kind of tapping people on the shoulder and going, Hey, you know, you want to come down and record in my basement for free, you know? So that was really, that was, and I mean, I couldn't put a year on that exactly, but that was, uh, that was actually, uh, sometime between, the second, it was sometime after the second Jawbox record. And then really started, I started really doing it in earnest after For Your Own Special Sweetheart because we got a little bit more recording equipment and we were, and we started really doing intense demoing uh, for the last Jawbox record. So it was a much more serious little operation down there. So do you subscribe to the, um, I guess, the Albini definition of what a producer is versus an engineer? Um, in terms of producer being uh, someone who, you know, essentially tells you how to rewrite your songs <laughs> and uh, an engineer no, just capturing no, the band. No, I just think it's loose. I think it, I think the definition of what a producer is, it, I think it's okay that it's loose. It's okay that it can mean a lot of different things, mm-hmm. you know, cause I feel like, um, I feel like when of all the producers that I've worked with as a musician, you know, they've had different, like pretty different approaches to it. But I know that the record wouldn't, 
be the same if if that person hadn't participated, even if all they were doing was pointing microphones and like cracking jokes. Mm -hmm. There's still something in the air that made that recording, you know, that was particular to that recording that, that I feel like it, it does translate. So whether Ian Burgess wanted to be credited as a producer of novelty or not, like that's sort of, I feel like that was his call to make. So if Ian wanted, you know, if Ian had said, don't call me a producer, I just recorded it, just say engineered by Ian Burgess, then we would have been like, okay, engineered by Ian Burgess, you know. But uh, so the, you know, the, the person being there and, and, or like working with John Aniello, he did do some real producery type things that were absolutely to the benefit of the songs. Like there were songs that, that weren't dynamic at all. And he said, Hey, maybe the verses could be a little quieter so that you get a little more excitement out of the chorus when it comes up. Mm. And we were like, really? Let's try that. Wow. And then, you know, and then, and then it was great, you know, or he's like, couldn't you go one more place before that last chorus? And we're like, you mean like a bridge? You know? <laughs> so, so he definitely like, you know, I mean, so he did a little bit of that, but a lot of his genius was just being a great guy to hang out with and, and creating a feeling like we were going to do something awesome. And he brought a lot of toys with him, you know, so that like the last Jawbox records, the first time we ever used really ever tried to use effects pedals, like guitar pedals at all. And we like, we went nuts with them, you know, like we used to, we used them a lot and we used them because they were John's and he brought them and, and we felt a freedom to play, you know, Wait, so, so so how did you get distortion before that? Oh, it was always amp distortion. Amp distortion oh. is is mostly cooler than Did you I just use you... your knobs to control the amount then? Yeah, it was always it was always um preamp volume. Like like we pretty much always played in Jawbox, we always played Marshall uh JCM eight hundreds, you know, master master volume Marshall. So you just crank the preamp to like you know, usually it, I mean for a long time it was just like preamp to ten master volume on two it's a hundred watt marshall it just you know sounds fucking awesome so boom boom you're done you know mm -hmm. and and that has way better i mean it's it's a little bit different it's just like an aesthetic choice or whatever but you know and then like in and um in burning airlines i would use two amps but they were basically pretty pretty robustly i mean i never liked like a shit ton of gain like a, like a mesa boogie like you know massive like rectifier kind of gain i really think like that just doesn't i just feel silly but uh but what i would tend to do is just like sort of crank the preamp gain on like a like an old marshall not like a new crappy shitty marshall but uh like an 80s marshall and then i would get my clean sound with a volume pedal by backing it backing down the input to the amp mm -hmm. you know so, and only I, I started using the volume pedal cause I couldn't, um, cause I'm really clumsy. <clears throat> so I would never, if I had a channel switching head or like tried to use a pedal for, for, for dynamics, like an on off kind of thing, I would always get the timing wrong, but, a but a, uh, you know, I'd be like clicking late into the distortion or something. So, um, or early or you'd just be, would just be a shit show. So instead I would be, uh, uh. I would use a volume pedal and that way I could sort of ramp suddenly into it and it would kind of blur the edge of, you know, mm -hmm. just all about having two left feet. 
That's cool because some, I mean, some guitarists would use the volume on, on the guitar to do that, but then you lose some the tone changes, right? So, well, the pedal is the pedal is just a potenti- potentiometer, yeah. Anyway, so it's kind of the same thing, but it literally mm-hmm. was just like like I I could not like I was right beyond my I have in the past I've always written beyond my ability to play, mm-hmm. and then sort sort of like faked my way like fake it till you make it, you know? And then on top of that, I would be trying to sing. So I'd be trying to sing on top of some insanely complex part that I could just barely play to begin with. So my attention would be divided. So it was just like spinning plates the whole time. And then on top of that, put pedals into the mixture, like plus I have two left feet. Like I'm completely, I'm like a, you know, I'm like a bull in a china shop. So anything that, that, um, like, like the choice between like having a little bit less, you know, great of a t- clean tone or like just like knocking everything over and completely blowing the performance of the song. Like it's fine if the clean tone's not as good, you know, because <laughs> so, right. that was the cho- That's the choice for me. So <laughs> in the uh, AV club article that came out a little bit ago, you talk about how 10 Lacey kind of made you guys break down, um, the mechanics yeah. a little bit of the band um first can you like you talked a little bit about in the article but can you give some i don't know specific examples of things that that really dramatically changed maybe through his his feedback um, well well i mean it really it wasn't like like he i don't really think that he had anything to say structurally about the songs mm-hmm. at all as far as the flow of you know how this the song the kind of story of the song, how it's constructed, you know, where, mm-hmm. where it goes musically, um, the, the actual content of the material, he didn't really have any input on, but as far as our presentation of the material, um, it was the first time we ever played with a click track, which we thought would be easy, but wasn't because we never, we didn't prepare for it. Um, and, uh, it was the first time that anyone ever made me aware of the idea of rushing or dragging, you know, pushing the beat, being ahead or behind of the beat. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I just kind of figured if we're all playing the same song at the same time, uh, we yeah. practice a lot. We're reasonably <laughs> right. tight. We get, right. to the, we get to the break and we all stop on a dime. We're tight, you know? Mm-hmm. But in fact, he's like, no, your drummer plays behind the beat. Listen, feel, you know, like we had this kind of long, it was great. Cause it was like going to school, but, um, but it was a bit of a rude awakening because we kind of thought like, you know, we're this intense live band. We'll just go be intense in the studio and then it'll be done. But in fact, it was, um, it was like, it was really hard work. And especially because also, you know, so it was things, things like, like learning to pay attention to the, the timing within, within the tempo, right? Like mm-hmm. being ahead or behind, which I was always ahead because guitar players are always ahead, but I'm always, I'm much better than, than I used to be, but I was like super ahead. Mm-hmm. And then also very sloppy. So, mm-hmm. you know, like things, like things are not clearly delineated that I thought were clear enough. It turns out I was hearing them in my head because I already knew how they were going. And also you mean that, like, like mecha- the, the mechanics of fretting, like, Right, exactly. Right, exactly. Like where, you know, extra notes that aren't supposed to be in their Mm -hmm. open strings clanging around and all that stuff, just Mm -hmm. playing more precisely and also fretting in tune. Like I, I still can't play in tune. I'm, I'm the worst that way. I just have this like, you know, monkey grip or whatever. And, um, though I'm not as bad as some, but like, I'm much worse than 
some other people I know. <laughs> mm -hmm. So all that stuff um, it was just like we put a microscope on it, you know. So um, and there were, I mean, generally like Kim was quite good. Kim's like so. It's you know this you know that saying about like the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. So like, do you ever have you ever heard that saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, so Kim's totally like that. Like Kim is just like shows up on time, thoroughly plans ahead, is you know is is prepared, crosses her T's, dots her I's. So she was just like completely, always completely consistent, right on time, on the beat, no stress, just like boom. And Bill, pretty much the same. Um, you know, Zach has this kind of like, you know, sort of thinks outside the box rhythmically a lot. So there were some things that he couldn't just settle with the click on and that that we had some real frustrations. Like there were, there were, there were a couple songs that he like, you know, where he really went ballistic and had to, we actually had to track everything. There's one song in particular, we had to track everything separately and he actually had to track the song in sections and then they, um, you know, punching, you know, like, okay, now we're going to do the intro up through the first verse, you know, and then we're going to punch in for the chorus and then do, and like a lot of time, other things he would just like, it just came out, you know, great, perfect, no problem. But me, disaster. Just like <laughs> really, really hard work, really hard work. And and especially the singing, like I had no, you know, I mean, I think I'm a, I'm a, I don't think I'm a great singer. I just need to sing. Like that's just how I feel. And, and uh, I don't even think I'm a good singer. And, uh, but then at that time, I thought I was an okay singer and I realized that I was a shitty singer. <laughs> so, and that was all through like, you know, like, like, a, like, like there are people who are not technically good singers, but who really can deliver the song, you know, like Nick Cave is somebody like that or Blixa Bargeld or like, I mean, you could think of like a million people like that. Um, and I like, I was like none of the above. So a lot of our, a lot of our time was like, I mean, Ted was so meticulous. He was like punching for syllables just to get them in tune. You know, I had no idea how flat I would sing, how inconsistent from take to take. Like it really was pretty brutal on me, but you know, I mean, that's, that was, so it was a weird feeling on the one hand, cause Ted was very supportive and super, like a super good guy, really enjoyable. It was a lot about the experience it was really enjoyable and it was really educational but I also like for me, I had a feeling a lot of the time where it was like, well, Ted's going to get a good record out of us no matter what, you know, which is not the same feeling as holy shit, we're going to do great work here. You know, like, mm -hmm. like we're going to really, we're, we're making something special. And it's like, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was like, it was like, this is going to turn out by hook or by crook. It's going to be fucking good, no matter how hard I have to work. And so, you know, that's, but I'm, but I'm super glad for the experience. I mean, that was like, you know, it was a masterclass in all the things that are not fun, but often necessary about record making. So, and I, I took it to heart for a long time too, about um, like uh, as a, as a guy who would record bands, I thought, Oh, here's something that I know that, you know, I can share with these guys, you know, I'd be like something as dumb as like intonate your guitar down to like, you know, you're rushing, you can hear where you're rushing this thing or whatever. So like all the mechanics kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's funny because now 
in the like 2000, you know, in the, in the 21st century, like age of digital perfection, I get really psyched when people don't want to clean everything up because any schmuck can clean everything up now. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right. So it's like, who cares? Like, why would you want to have a record that's that perfect? But, but for us at that time, <clears throat> it was really, it was, it was great. Cause we we heard ourselves, we heard this thing that we could aspire to be. And it was like, really like clear right there in front of us, you know, when did you decide that you wanted to start singing? Um, <clears throat> when I, when I was in GIs actually. Okay. Um, and it was only because, um, the, uh, John, the singer of GIs, um, has a very specific shtick that he does. And he has like a really, let's say a really his comfort zone is very clear and he does not depart from it. And, um, for me, like I'm hearing melodies and, and ways that they're harmonized like all the time. And I could come up with a vocal melody, you know, like I said, like lyrics are hard as shit, but melodies, no problem. I got a bazillion melodies all the time. So I could always hear ways that things could be, and then they never were that way. <laughs> And uh, so I just thought, you know, the next band I'm in, and then the other thing was I was playing bass in GIs and the guitar player kind of ran the show as far as being the, the like, here's how the song is going to go. Here's the arc of the song, you know, even whoever wrote the material, if it was based on a bass line or whatever, the arc of the material was determined by the guitar player and everything else kind of supported the guitar. So I was just like, next band I'm going to be in, the next band I have I'm going to sing and I'm going to play guitar because also, because these are things I had never did before. Right. Um, I had never, th these were things I had never done before in a band. And then also um, just because if I have an idea, I want to just be able to do it. <laughs> so, so that's, that's really what it was, you know, and it's very that's... liberating to, to sing feels really good. So, you know, no matter how bad of a singer you are, it just feels fucking good to like, let shit out so so that's like late 80s like 87 88 in that yeah. range yeah. yeah right around right well jawbox i guess we started in 89 i was gonna say how long afterwards did it take you to to put jawbox together and like what was the process in that in getting everybody together um well i just knew <clears throat> kim wanted to start a band she had never been in a band before and i wanted to play guitar and sing in a band um, and Kim and I were dating at that time. And it was just like, this is what all the, this is what my favorite, you know, cause at that time I, I joined GIs. I was like the ninth bass player in government issue. Um, and longest tenured bass player too, but, but it's like, I was one of many. <laughs> and then, uh, for a couple of months after GIs broke up, I played, I joined scream cause their bass player had, had quit. So that was like this. So I started, I, I was thinking to myself like, well, am I like this young guy who just joins old guy bands that already have been around forever? That's kind of cool. Cause I had been, I'd played in two of my favorite bands. So I was like, GIs. I love GIs scream. Absolutely loved scream. Um, but you know, Skeeter Thompson's a bass player of scream. Nobody else is a bass player of scream. So when they, they reconciled with Skeeter, um, I was, I was like, you know, all my favorite bands were people who just wanted to start something from scratch together it was built out of relationships and friendships and and um 
So that's what I want to do. That's what that's what should happen now. So, and Adam was just a guy that I knew. We had a lot of friends in common, um, and you know he had grown up in my same neighborhood, and I knew that he was a drummer who really wasn't playing, and he was a nice guy, and so, I mean, that was basically it. Wait a minute, you played in Scream. Yeah, there's there's an important co- connection because the first album we ever reviewed for this podcast was uh-huh. wool oh awesome which this is one peter and france stall yeah the full length or the or the bud spawn ep uh but the box set album oh, okay yeah that was uh so jay and i the, the reason this we are doing this podcast is because we were in college together in the 90s and we worked at a radio station um bowling green state university here in ohio <laughs> and um we we decided to go back and like 2010 i guess and start pulling these albums out and being like do you remember what this sounded like i don't even remember what this sounded like let's let's have a beer and discuss this on a podcast Uh and um that was like the first one where i went i totally like loved this record i have no idea what it sounds like but i know i really liked it i I just remember Uh the name and that was like that was the first episode and so that's funny that's That's uh i didn't know that you had had played in that band yeah, only for like two months. It was really like it was crazy because I, GIs had broken up, and I was I was uh, the shipping. I had a job in this art supply store, and I was the shipping clerk. And I tried out for Scream because um, I knew that Skeeter had quit. And Scream literally was my favorite band. Like, uh, and I, <clears throat> I just blew the audition. Like I, I they already knew who they wanted. Um, it was this guy, Ben, who actually, weirdly enough, like many years later, ended up playing in Burning Airlines. So he was like our our fourth member who kind of did all this stuff from the record that we couldn't pull off as a trio. But anyway, at that time, you know, Ben was just like this phenomenal player. And he was like a real rock and roll guy. Like, you know, he had like long stringy hair and bell bottoms and he wore a leather vest. And it was like all this kind of side of scream that I was not really enchanted with like the kind of more rock and roll, like rock outside, as opposed to the, the hardcore punk side. Um, but so that was who they wanted. They wanted Ben in the band, but I got to go do an audition and I kind of blew it because I was intimidated. So I was like, well, okay, I kind of know I'm not in the band. That's fine. So I went to work, you know, went back to work. I'm just hanging out. And then <clears throat> a little while later, I get a call from Pete Stahl and he's like, yeah, you know, we're stuck in LA. Ben didn't really work out. And it turns out that they hadn't got they'd gone on tour and they hadn't gotten along. And then Ben kind of got poached in LA. He got poached by um, someone from like Rick Rubin's, you know, company, Entourage, whatever, that they were they were starting this um, kind of Southern rock revival band called the Four Horsemen. And they were like <laughs> They, they were they were like i know that band it, it, right it's all like ex-punk dudes it's just like junkyard like dudes that were in hardcore bands now playing southern rock right so they were like you have the look we are looking for like you're the guy and ben was just like my ships come in fuck you guys so he so he was so he was he left them stranded in la and i was literally the only other person that knew the songs so pete called me up and i quit my job and i flew and met them in california and practiced twice and then finished out their tour across Canada and through the Midwest and down the East Coast. And it was super fucking fun. It was really, really great. Um, and like it was and so different, like really different from uh, from GIs, because in GIs, we mostly 
had like everything really battened down. Like, like GIs was an incredibly well-rehearsed, super tight machine of a band. And because we had this kind of like loose cannon of a singer, like the rest of us were like, we learned to like not count off before we'd play songs, you know, we would, and we would just go like song, 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 no breaks, no chance for John to like talk to anybody in the audience. He would talk over the songs anyway. So we would just be like, I mean, it, it was, we were serious, you know, like we were really like taking no prisoners. It was very, our, our, our discipline was really intense and we very rarely deviated. Whereas in Scream, they would do things like, you know, like in Rockford, Illinois, Pete Stahl goes like, hey, Franz, I feel like playing ballroom blitz tonight. And I'm like, Pete, I don't know ballroom blitz. And Pete goes, Jay, everybody knows ballroom blitz, you know? Like, and they would just pull a cover out and I would have to kind of like keep up. And they were, they were really spontaneous and like kind of loose in a really cool way. And, um, and, uh, you know, instead of being this like super lockstep type thing, you know, like, like Dave would play, like Dave was like super dynamic drummer and he would play really, like he would tend, like he could drag in a really musical way where like, which was really blew my mind, like to play some songs, they would kind of do build tension by just like slowing down and and it was really cool and I never you know I mean it was just amazing but basically what ended up happening was we kind of got to the end of two months of touring and nobody ever said well now you're the bass player in Scream you know thanks you were kind of saved our kind of saved our ass like thanks a lot not that I expected a reward or anything like it, there just literally wasn't there was no discussion like they would just call me and go oh, we got another show and I'd be like okay cool so after all this kind of unspoken stuff, I was like, you know, that's when I, that's when I was like, I can't just be this young guy who joins old guy bands. And as a Scream fan, I don't want to see this like doughy young white kid playing bass for Scream, like Skeeter Thompson, this, you know, like dreadlocked, charismatic, towering black man who's like a, he's, he was like a, le like when I was a kid, he was like a legend. He was like a hero of DC hardcore, you know, like as, as a suburban kid going to shows, he was like one of the superheroes, like Skeeter, you know, a real character of the scene. So, so I'm like, I can't fill those shoes. Like that's not scream. It's not really screaming that Skeeter. So they sort of reconciled with him. And I was like, the right thing to do is I'm going to start my own band. So that's the fascinating story. <laughs> All right. Two points I have to make for those listening at home. The Dave <laughs> that Jay just mentioned is Dave Grohl. Because some people probably don't know that Dave Grohl played in a hardcore band called Scream, unless they watched the documentary that he was in on HBO. And then two, the Four Horsemen have one of the greatest song titles that isn't an ACDC song in history, which is Rockin' Is My Business and Business Is Good. Yeah, it's pretty atrocious. <laughs> yeah. But if I told you that was an ACDC song, you'd say, I believe you. Right, but I, would, not, probably, they put, I would probably think it's a great ACDC song. You'd think it was yeah. a great ACDC song. It's a terrible yeah. Four Horsemen song. Right. <laughs> okay, I, I got a little thrown off track there. But, uh, okay, let me go back to my, my questions that I have <laughs> written any, down. If anyone's still listening at home. <laughs> oh, trust me. <laughs> we've we, gone hours with other... We, we won't do that to you tonight, but we've gone right. hours with other guests. And trust me, people love it. So don't worry we, about that part of it. We we spent three hours with uh, Alan Johannes of Eleven, and I'm pretty sure he was 
ready to go another three, but we had to break it. We had to stop <laughs> at that point. I want to go back to, you mentioned about the move the, the, between novelty and sweetheart. You know, obviously you signed to Atlantic. I was just curious about when you made the move to Atlantic, you mentioned about getting recording gear. Was that like money that you used to buy that? Or did they actually like give you gear with the intent oh, no, no, of no. We, recording? We, we, we had, you know, I mean, we, we spent money to, we bought gear, but okay. it wasn't, I can't remember if we bought the gear when we bought it or, you know, if we augmented it or what, but did you um, use your advance for that? That's what I can't remember. Yeah. I mean, you know, but it wasn't like we bought, you know, it wasn't like whatever you're picturing it, it like, like scale it down because <laughs> it really wasn't. It was like a, yeah. it was like a, a Tascam cassette eight track and a pair of NS tens, you know, Yamaha bookshelf speakers. And, um, a friend of Pete Moffitt's who had a bunch of gear sort of had a, he kind of had a fire sale. So we bought his used microphones and cables and, you know, we bought some like radio shack PZMs and, some cheap compressors and stuff. So it was, it was, um, it was cool because it was minimal enough that we learned to make it work with, without, you know, we had to, we had to make, we had to make it work basically. Um, and the space wasn't ideal or anything, but somehow like we made some really good recordings in there, you know, like we did a lot of stuff like, um, we did some Jawbox things that were like the last song that we wrote together was a was a B side um, called Apollo Amateur, and that was recorded in our basement, and it was released on you know on a record along with stuff that was twenty four track, you know, and it's compilation songs we did down there, and like uh, Sweet Belly Freak Down, the Sweet Belly Freak Down record I did down there, and. Uh, um, a dismemberment plan single and you know i mean a bunch of stuff oh, uh, uh mon orchid like a bunch of stuff that actually got released so um but yeah it wasn't um uh it was it was pretty primitive Did but it guys... was nice because everybody had to crowd together in this little cinder block room and i think that was part of why it was why people liked it because it was really like a you just had to do a take you know you had to really play the song and if you played the song really great, then it would sound really great. So, did you guys have uh, material that you were working on when Jawbox broke up, or had you? Because you know the the album had come out not too. I don't think it was too long or too wasn't too much space between the last album and. I think and... I think I had a couple parts that ended up you know that would have been Jawbox songs that ended up being Burning Your Line songs. Okay. But it wasn't like a whole much, a whole a whole bunch of material. It was just literally just parts, and some of them were parts like uh, like Burning Airlines had this song called Wheaton Calling that was like a like we called it Wheaton Calling because it had that uh, London calling like the bump 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 the bump the bump kind of feel from from the Clash song, mm-hmm. and uh, I had that. I was starting to write that, but that was a feel that Zach would never play. Like, I think I showed that to him and he was like, I don't know what you want me to do with this, but it's not happening. (laughs) And and, uh, get rid of it. Yeah, totally. And, um, and then this, I had a riff that was, uh, that ended up becoming the burning airline song, the deluxe war baby. That would have been a jawbox song. That's like similar to some other jawbox songs that were kind of in this kind of swingy bluesy kind of, 
pastiche, like, you know, kind of feel. But yeah, we didn't have a, we didn't have a whole ton of material because we when we because we had done the record and then we toured. We had like a sort of touring cycle, and it was the, at the end of this medium longish touring cycle that we just decided to pack it in. A lot of bands, like I mentioned, made the jump from from indies to to majors. Did you guys experience any like negative feedback or 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 any sort of issues when you did that? Um, some bands, you know did it seamlessly you know a lot of people after sonic youth made the jump to get it became easier yeah it became easier um but were there any like hesitations about doing that with regards uh, to well i know? think the, i think that the people who were hardest on us were were us um because we sort of you know i mean we felt we felt like it was a big deal and we wouldn't, you know, we gave our, we gave ourselves a lot of grief about it. Not grief, but we made it, um, we made it very, we sort of set these impossible criteria. When the opportunity came up, we were like, okay, we, we could see what was appealing about it because it basically was, at that point, it was time, at that point, we were kind of burned out. We, you know, we were very hardworking indie band and, and we had kind of sort of done everything that we could do within the within the context of the the within the context that we were in you know like we toured the shit out of the united states and um and it kind of felt like if we didn't have some um change of venue like some kind of uh uh words escaping me shit but basically like we kind of needed to hit refresh in some way Mm -hmm. and so you know this seemed like that kind of opportunity like oh now here's a here's a new context that we have to learn to navigate that's good it kind of gives us a it gives us it's grit it's grist for the mill you know um but uh but we thought well we'll only do this if we can if we really believe wholeheartedly if we really know that we can bring along you know every all the aspects that we that are really dear to our heart about the way that we already do things so i mean in in i think you know some people would say that dc like all music scenes has a long history of people talking shit behind each other's backs so i have no idea whether there was a huge backlash or not, but as far as how people behaved towards us at the time, we just got support. It was great. It was really cool. We were way more worried about, you know, oh my God, people are going to hate us because we stabbed the back of the scene, you know, in this big way. But we never really, never got that vibe. Um, and even even Ian, Ian was extremely, uh, Mackay was was like, basically said to us, he was really supportive in a really interesting way which was to say, if this is what you want to do, like really jump in with both feet, like be sure that you want to do it, like own it, like, like, you know, know what you're doing and do it. And, um, which was really cool. And I think maybe we didn't totally take his advice. Like, I don't think we really understood the depth of that kind of a statement. Um, but you know, he wasn't, you know, at no point did he ever say or even give off a vibe, like, you know, 
what the fuck are you doing to me? How dare you? You know, it was never, nobody was ever like that. Everybody was just like, you know, good luck and Godspeed kind of. Um, uh, but you know, for, for us, we were, we were, we were, um, we were like, we'll do this if we can administrate our own budget. If we, you know, the labels, the major labels at that time anyway, and probably still, you know, they like you to have a manager so that there's a buffer zone between the artist and the label. So there's, there's somebody who can talk about all the like dirty, awful things that you don't want to, you know, like basically, you know, a buffer zone, a, a, a middleman. So they, they want bands to have a manager and we were always self-managed. So rather, but rather than signing to a management company, um, we enlisted a good friend who is a show promoter in Chicago and said, you know, will you, will you be our manager? Which basically means he could be a proxy for us, you know? So we have this, this person who's a buffer zone, but it's not big management Inc, you know, with a thousand bands and like, here's how we're going to make you a big star. It's like, here's a guy who understands the machinations of how things work, but we're basically just trying to make things work the way you want them to work, you know? And mm-hmm. really, he really like, I mean, he did a lot more than this, but there were times when he was mostly a mouthpiece because Kim Coletta was the manager of Jawbox. You know, she really was the one who drove the engine, the, the engine of like uh, practical achievement in that band, you know? And, she, and with that's, that's how our band worked. You know, we didn't want to change that. So we, we changed it kind of in name only. And we worked with somebody who we really loved and trusted as opposed to signing up to some management company, you know? Um, and, and it was stuff like that where we, you know, we were like, we were just adamant about, you know, we're going to, we're going to choose who the producer is. We're not going to have somebody tell us who we're going to work with or where we're going to make the record and all, all that stuff. And we really, we really had our cake and, and ate it too. I mean, um, and then there was a point at which <clears throat> there was a bit of a reckoning, you know, where even though for us, the whole experience, despite, despite the fact that we were sort of fraught about, you know, well, are we selling out or aren't we, you know, we're really trying desperately to do this without selling out, you know, um, we had a lot of like philosophical discussions about it, you know, um, but, uh, um, but it basically was overwhelmingly positive. And then, you know, like we, I mean, we did all, we did a lot of great stuff. And then we, we even probably tripled the sales of our records compared to having been on discord. But the reality is for a major label, you know, so if that's like, if we sold like 60,000 records, we're like, you know, I mean, that's amazing. That's great. That's like phenomenal. But to Atlantic Records, that's not phenomenal. That's a failure, you know. So, right. um, so there was a point at which, um, the like I don't think we, I think only in retrospect did we realize that they did all the stuff. They did all the because it was that golden moment when major labels really didn't understand what they were signing. They just really wanted a piece of this thing, you know, like. They really wanted to sign Fugazi, but Fugazi would never sign, so they got us and Shudder to think, you know. Um, <clears throat> and they had no, they didn't have a clue about what the, they never have a clue about what the content is. They only know there's a demand and they want in on it. So it was a magical time because we knew what the rules were and they didn't know. So we got the benefit of the doubt. And, um, and then it wasn't a smash hit. 
And that's the point at which major labels go, you know, you really realize that they're only in the business of making smash hits. So after that, after that, you know, six month period, then there was sort of a cooling off, <laughs> you know, where it became much more realistic. But um, anyway. Were you dealing with multiple labels before you signed to Atlantic or was that there basically were, it? There were really only two. <clears throat> um, there was Atlantic and there was, uh, I forget if it was, it was Columbia, but it m- might have been called CBS at that moment. But the guy, it was the label that ultimately signed Shutter, and it was the guy, the A&R guy who signed Shutter. And we went, part of the reason we went with Atlantic was that the A&R guy that was pursuing us at Atlantic was Mike Gitter, who was a guy that we knew from the Boston hardcore scene from the 80s, who had a fanzine called Triple X. And, you know, we knew a million people in common, and we knew that he came from the same place that we came from. And as an A&R guy, he was basically doing the same thing that we wanted to do as a band. You know, like he got this A&R job, and then he just signed bands that he really loved, that he believed in, that were his friends, and he knew that they were, he, he knew that they were working their asses off and trying to, you know, make something good. And that, that was all, that was what he did as an A&R guy. So, um, you know, he was, he was super supportive and great. And we were just like, the alternative was this kind of like sort of A&R career cheese ball named Michael Goldstone who worked for, uh, Columbia. And he seemed nice enough, but we were just like, you know what? We're punk rock. We're, we gotta like work with our friend. Right. Right. So that was, that was really the decision in a nutshell, I mean, not, not put quite so, you know, we went through, we was a little bit more, uh, nuanced than that, but that's what it boiled down to. Was he there the entire time you were at Atlantic? Yeah. Yeah. Cause we've heard a lot of times where the person who signs the band and convinces them to come to the label, like, and then 12 months later they get fired. They get and, a better, or they get a better job. Yeah. Or they get a better job. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then that's all of a the sudden classic. your advocate is gone. Yeah, but no, that's the classic story. I mean, that's why I say I, we don't. I don't think we knew how good we had it, you know, because I think that's much more normal. People, you know, people are careerists. It's not is because it's not remotely punk rock, you know. But Mike's mm-hmm. pretty punk rock, so you know, he just wanted to be where he was. He he didn't. Um, but what happened was he still had to answer to uh, higher authorities, who at a certain point looked at about some balance sheet somewhere and said these guys are not, these guys are not going to do it for us. So the last record we did, um, they actually shunted us over to this, um, subsidiary label with that, you know, the pitch was, you know, okay, you guys are not hit makers. That's awesome. That's fine. We want to, you're, you know, it's like such, they have such a spiel. They have such a parlance, you know, so we were a developing artist at that point. Like, no, you're not, you know, it's not going to be a smash. You're developing artists. We're going to support developing artists with this smaller label. Um, and you know, we, I mean, we worked with some really nice people. We worked directly, people that we worked directly with at Atlantic, some of them are still friends of ours and they were just awesome and they were in it for the right reasons and everything. Um, and some of them were associated with this label, this, um, tag records, which was an acronym for the Atlantic group, but which we soon started calling toe tag records. Um, (laughs) because, because that's really what it was like, you know, for, for the tag records never really developed into a label. It was a, it was a logo and they had an office and then they changed offices and then they had a staff and then suddenly they didn't have a staff. It was just a couple people. It never really solidified into anything. And, 
even though we still got to do some major labely type stuff like making videos and you know uh it 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 was much more of a fight to even get to make the record at that point you know it was like a lot of demoing and writing and and having what we thought of as creative breakthroughs and then we'd send the demos and and you know even our our friend and our guy mike Gitter would say i really like what i'm hearing but you know i think you guys should keep writing which is a total stalling tactic in the hopes that somebody will write a song that they that someone thinks is a hit but at that point everybody is everybody in the label superstructure is reckoning with the fact that they don't know what the fuck they're talking about anyway they wouldn't you know they don't mostly don't understand this music and and it was starting to taper off as a as a mainstream cultural phenomenon so it was just you know it's a mirror in a way perhaps it's a miracle that we even got to make that last record you know Mm-hmm. But because uh, um, we could very easily have been one of those bands that just got stuck in a contractual limbo and and who, you know, weren't allowed to make their record because, you know, that that happened a lot, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, yeah. But anyway, so, so we, you know, we had a good run, I would say, as all things told, we had a pretty great run. with Atlantic. So we've heard from a lot of people that we've talked to um, about how the touring landscape changed when they would sign to a major. And a lot of times it was because they would be then paired with, you know, they'd be able to get onto like the big tour mm-hmm. where there was opening for like Alice in Chains or opening for um, Soundgarden or some huge band right. that would, could do arenas. I've heard a story about you guys. So did you guys open for Stone Temple Pilots? We did a six week tour with Stone Temple Pilots. The tour okay. was Stone Temple Pilots and meat puppets and us. And, um, and it really sounds when you, it really, that really sounds like it would not work, but, um, it was fantastic. It was really, it was really great. And, um, and it was the really just about the opposite of everything. Cause always, you know, you always hear horror stories about the the opener getting shat upon from a great height, you know, like the headliner always kind of, hogs the PA power and, and, and is sometimes literally like abusive towards, you know, the quote unquote little people in the opening band kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, that tour was just not like that at all. Like it was, it was super sweet and humane. I mean, even from the day that we got there, like the, the tour manager, I mean, the whole vibe was literally like, we're all going to be in this together for six weeks and we could make you hate us or we could all get along and have a good time. So why don't we all get along and have a good time? And, and it was just fucking great that way. I mean, um, and I think strangely enough, um, it actually worked. I have no idea why it worked musically, but I know that after that tour and even now, like there are a lot of people who became supporters of our band who even, you know, we're still in touch with, you know, people that I'll like see, like I'll hear from on Facebook or whatever, who who heard our band for the first time on that tour, and it maybe and for some of them it even like turned them on to a completely different world of underground music that they weren't aware of. So mm-hmm. for whatever reason, there was actually a synergy, um, and and it was super fun and a super good tour. But I mean, definitely, you would I wouldn't blame you for imagining that it could be terrible. But it it was great. 
I mean, the funniest thing about it was that we didn't, the first person on that tour, the first show was at the Gorge in um, Washington State. It was like this, it's like way out in the middle of nowhere. And it's not too far from Idaho. Um, and it literally is like, uh, it's like a big outdoor venue that overlooks a river gorge. And um, there were all these wildfires in Ohio. So there was like just dust everywhere. Like it was smoky and dusty and like, it was crazy, but, but so we pulled up to this place. It's like the hugest place we've ever been in the weirdest setting. And the first person who walked up to our van is Scott Weiland. And he's like, you guys are Jawbox, right? And, and we're like, yeah. And he's like, Hey, thanks. I just want to say thanks for coming on tour. We're really glad. We're really, really glad to have you. And it was super nice and welcoming. And I also think maybe he was kind of scoping us out to see if we were the kind of people that would have drugs. <laughs> and which I, which we were clearly not the kind of people who would have any drugs whatsoever, because after that point, I think we saw him like twice in six weeks, you know, mm. never less than pleasant, but we basically didn't see him. Um, but the, the guitar player and the bass player hung out a lot and they were super nice guys. They got us, the bass player got us an endorsement with Schecter guitars cause he used to work for them. And, uh, Bill, Bill played a Schecter PT telly, um, so Robert, the bass player, like he and Robert just kind of bonded over it. And Robert was like, you know, I used to work for Schecter. I used to put guitars together in the Schecter custom shop in LA and he made introductions. And then we got free guitars from Schecter for wow. a number of years. So, I mean, they helped us load our stuff on stage. Um, one time when we were super late, cause the, the routing, you know, was kind of bus routing. So you could they would drive overnight and we would just have to, we were in a van. So we would just get up super early in the morning and like hightail it to wherever, you know, and there was some show in uh, Lawrence, Kansas, where we, we, we almost didn't make it for our set time. And Dean and Robert were literally helping us hump gear onto the stage. Like they, they were super sweet, you know, and real like, like musical gourmands, you know, in the same way that we are, like we could talk to them about like, Eno and XTC and all this like crazy eighties music that we really loved. And, no, it was, it was, it was actually a great, oh, and the other, the, the coolest thing probably that they did was, um, when we played in Manchester, New Hampshire, I guess, I guess the last time they had played in Manchester, there was some kind of altercation between Scott Weiland and some kid from the audience and the kid had gotten hurt. And, uh, so this time in Manchester, there was a bomb threat at the venue. So they didn't, they delayed the start of the show. And the first thing that you would do in that circumstance is cut the opening band, right? But it was the only time Kim grew up. Uh, Kim grew up in New Hampshire, and it was the only time her dad had ever come to see her play, and they knew it. So we got to play. They were like, they were like, we can't cut your set because Kim's dad is coming. So I mean, it was pretty like, it was pretty decent. It was pretty, pretty for real, you know. Mm -hmm. That's pretty, great. Pretty humane. Yeah. yeah. I, I had heard a rumor and I, this might've been something that just like every, it might've been something that was applied to like every band, like one of those urban legend type things. Mm -hmm. But I had heard back in the nineties before the, before the internet could confirm these things um, that you guys were on that tour and somebody threw a beer at Kim's base mm -hmm. and it like caused it to short circuit or something. And that Scott Weiland came out and screamed at the crowd and said, if you don't show some respect, we're not playing or something along those lines. <laughs> oh, you know, that might have happened. 
it's weird that I wouldn't remember that, but Kim would probably remember it. But it doesn't sound impossible. Okay. It might have. But again, that could be like. It might be one of those tales that grew in the telling. But that was definitely. um, I would be. You know what? I'm not surprised if I don't remember it because I have that kind of patchy memory. Like it's amazing I remember as much as I do. But um, but it definitely doesn't. It definitely uh, maybe maybe that rings a bell. Oh. That's weird. But I've I mean, always been curious, like, because I'm like, are you sure it wasn't like Eddie Vedder coming out to, to defend <laughs> somebody in, you know, some other obscure right. band? Like, why are you putting these two bands together? And so, yeah. no, it was that, true. It was uh, it's true in spirit, if not in fact, you know, <laughs> as far as as far as them being supportive of us as a as the little band on their tour, you know, it, it was it's definitely true. I mean, they they were. Uh, they were highly supportive and the whole, the whole kind of structure of the tour, the, the people that worked on the tour, it was really, it was really positive. You know, we didn't see a whole lot of the meat puppets. We didn't hang out with them very much. And like I said, we barely saw Scott Weiland, but, but the general vibe was like, and it's funny cause I, you know, up to that point, I, I routinely would badmouth Stone Temple Pilots as being like a fake grunge band. But I have to say that really turned me around to, you know, the point where, um, it made it made us all fans of their band, you know, because that's the thing. Like when somebody is just like you get to know the person and they turn out to be fundamentally decent and smart and cool. Like, why wouldn't you support what they're trying to do? You know, it's 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 coming from a genuine believe it or not. It's coming from a genuine place. So it's just that, you know, they they don't have that. They don't have the context that we have where, you know, I mean, like my context is. I never thought you, like, if it weren't for punk rock, I never would have left my parents' house. I'd just be sitting at the piano all day, not talking to anybody. So it's only because of punk rock that I um, have, that I got the feeling that I could do something that would actually connect with other people, literally. I mean, you know, here's like, oh my God, here's a venue where I, I can, like, I don't need... I don't need permission or like, I don't need to know the secret handshake or the special rules or anything. I can just do something and, and make something happen. So it has, so, so, so along with, so along with punk rock saving my life, it has all this other context along with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Not everybody gets that. Some people just get records and they love records and they want to play music. (laughs) You know, they don't have like a sociocultural, all the sociocultural baggage of, of a protest movement, you know, that's like, you know, empowers people who are, you know, too hung up to talk to anybody, <laughs> you know? Right. So, so, I mean, that's, that's from just, a distance. It's easy to say like, or think that, you know, they're sitting around like listening to Nirvana records and like planning how they're going to rip them off. But when you get right. to know them, you're like, they're just playing the music that they play. Like this well, is just, or, well, the, well, the fact is they may well have been ripping. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. they were ripping off Nirvana records, but everybody rips off somebody sometime, right. you know? So I, it's, I mean, I also know that, you know, I mean, Kurt Cobain loved David Bowie. Guess what? Those guys love David Bowie. You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. not, it's not so black and white. You know, everybody is sort of uh, coming from the same uh, primordial ooze of, of of culture, you know, in one way or another. Like it's all it's all informed from some common common thing, you know, mm-hmm. some thing, some thing in common. But you know, 
I mean, I'm not going to launch like a, a passionate defense of Stone Temple Pilots either. But, <laughs> I was going to say, are, I, are you disappointed yeah. that they're not touring with Scott and that <laughs> Scott's out touring on right. his own? And right, I mean, I don't. You know, they're separated. Shit. Yeah, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure you've listened to Purple a number of times, and well, I I did back then. Yeah, I did after we toured with them. I was just like, you know, these guys are actually pretty cool, you know. But I mean. You know, they did, they had a little acoustic set, little acoustic set in the middle of their set where they play, um, they played a really good cover of, uh, Andy Warhol by David Bowie. That was always like the highlight of the, of their set for me. So to the point that I, you know, I like, like it kind of got me into David Bowie. Like I sort of liked David Bowie a little bit. I didn't really know his music that much, but then after that tour, I was just like, shit, I should, I should get some David Bowie records. And then I got a lot of David Bowie records. Mm. And then I was like. I should I should just listen to that or David Bowie record again, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, but you guys never covered any Bowie. You did cover uh, Tori Amos, yeah. Um, and I read but, in that in that article that it was sort of not like anybody was ex- exactly a huge fan. It was more like, well, she's from where we're from, and yeah, it was not a, interesting. It was not a not a terribly sincere. It was not a sincere tribute. It was the uh, the motivation was kind of snarky. The motivation was very snarky, but then you know our our approach to the material was serious. You know, it was like trying to to take. It was it was it was that cool thing about doing covers. You know, a lot of times when we would write songs, we would start out not knowing what the end game was in the material. We would just sort of let the material lead us till it seemed like the song had a form or till we could beat it into a form. But, you know, doing covers is really instructive because, you know, not everybody writes songs that way. And like bands write songs that way all the time. But but people who write songs tend to, <clears throat> I think, a lot, a lot, you know, well, you can't generalize about that. That's a stupid thing to say. But, but like, um, you know, there is a way to write songs in which you're looking at the totality of what you're trying to express. And you, and so the form anyway, it's just cool to like to take a form that's already there and fill in the blanks in our way. You know, it's really great. That's one of the things that, that covers that makes cover tunes really liberating, but not like, I mean, you know, if you just play a cover, like exactly like the band that wrote it, that's kind of boring. It's, it can be fun to see a band do that, but it's way cooler. And we always tried to approach it this way to like, to, to take a song and, 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 you know, give it a, just make it different, you know, be that how much, how much can it be the same song, but put a really different spin on it in some way musically. So, I mean, that's why it was a super sincere and fun effort. And I feel like it turned out it, like I'm really proud of how it turned out. I think it's really good. Apart from me not really singing it very well, but, but it turned out really good. Things are getting kind of gross And I go at sleepy time This is not, this is not really happening 
Tori Amos. I think she, <laughs> I think she sucks. And the whole, the whole, you know, because I love Kate Bush, and I'm just like, you can't make a career out of just imitating Kate Bush. And that is what Tori Amos is to me. I know people will disagree, but I'm like, the best, the best bits of Tori Amos are just cribbed from Kate Bush. And I would much rather hear Kate Bush. But, um, but it was, I think, in that moment, I forget why we felt like we, we were like. Somebody said we should do a cover or what? I forget what the exact impetus was, but Bill was the guy who said we should cover this Tori Amos song, and uh, and everybody was kind of like, yeah, why not? Sure, you know, wasn't like a whole lot of thinking about it. It was not a sincere tribute, but it wasn't like a it wasn't like a a piss take either, you know. So it sounds like if you if you guys would have went on tour with it though, you maybe <laughs> would have became well, I. I can't see that. I can't see that ever happening. You know, I couldn't have seen. It. And they, I, we read some. Uh, we read some. Um, someone asked her about it in a radio interview, and she said the most like mealy, non-committal. She just said like, "I always love it when rocking bands want to interpret my material." Like she never heard it. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> like, very, it's very the, political response, right? So it's just like she doesn't give a shit. So I'm like you know, nor should she. But um, yeah, so I can't. I can, you know. I don't know what Tori Amos likes, but I'm pretty sure it's not Jawbox. So, so you will be doing your take on the Taylor Swift album. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Everyone should. Everyone should release a cover of the Taylor Swift record. That, that is actually kind you of guys scary, are, Aren't you guys going to do one? Everybody is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My daughter do one. That, that's <laughs> what I'm, I'm so scared that that's going to happen now, that, like, rock bands are going to start, like, pandering, like, see, oh, my God, this is the way to get attention and just start doing campy cover records of other pop artists or something. Well, there's probably precedent before Ryan <laughs> Adams for that. Yeah. There's been some here and there. Travis He's, did uh, that, that Britney Spears song years ago. I remember mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I, there was an interesting article in, I think it was like Salon or Slate recently about the appropriation of pop songs by white male troubadours. Mm-hmm. It was basically because of this whole Ryan Adams thing with mm-hmm. like it started with not started with, but you got the Britney Spears cover by Travis. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been some other instances where basically dudes with acoustic guitars and it's basically like the the premise is that, well, the song's not legitimate when a woman sings it as a pop song. It's only legitimized when a, a male sings it in a in a sad minor key way then it becomes a real song and that somehow pop is not relevant oh, or not right. relevant but it's not fully realized as i a, see right so it's it's just like this shallow kind of bauble like a commodity right like and it's and but then it takes a male kind of serious male you know white male kind of persona to lend it depth and then pull out the meaning in it because otherwise it's just bullshit right Right. Which, yeah. Well, I hate that kind of cultural critique, but I probably I probably think it's a little bit. <clears throat> I mean, I don't hate it, but I, I mean, because I also think there's probably a, it's, it's probably pretty valid. Critique, I mean, on, on the one know. hand, I agree with you. The the think piece on everything that is released by everyone is exactly is, you know it's tiresome. But at the same time, or at the same point, like I like that you know when you listen to that. I don't know, I don't know if you've even heard that Travis cover of baby hit me one more time but they're clearly having fun with it like they're singing he's singing it live with a a, by himself 
with a group of people and they're all singing along with him like it's a campfire almost uh-huh. and it like it kind of it kind of what it does really is it it makes it a song that's not this hyper produced plastic thing and turns it into a communal effort like we can all claim this song now it it's not this thing that's only on a music video and only on um right. you know a clear channel radio station but now I, I know the four chords that are that go into the song and I can sing it too. Right. Which right. makes it a little That's... bit more interesting to me. I don't know that I'll right. buy the Brian and Adams album, <laughs> but you know, I, I saw something where it, 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 um, it, it said that they both could be el- eligible for nominated for Grammys. And I think, uh, to your point, Tim, on that article, it would be interesting to see if that happened. <laughs> if oh my he God. Won. <laughs> Oh my like god! Like the, the commentary that that's saying, I mean, that, that really puts that that thought front to the forefront. I mean, I yeah. I think it's it's weird. It's like a double edged thing because I think you have to be critical of culture. You have to almost be suspicious of it, and, and it's never bad to be analytical when something like this happens. And and especially now, you know, there's it's like it's exciting that there's so much dialogue about um, you know going on about uh about you know privilege people coming people not realizing the extent of the privilege, their privileged position so that's all like super valid to me but it's also true that like like pop songs in particular are are not just one thing so um there is a lot to be said for just giving a different interpretation to a song and and wrestling some kind of meaning, you know, or different, different perspective from it. Um, you know, just by putting it in a different setting, that's not something to, that's, that's something cool. That's not something you should be inherently suspicious of because it's invalidating the, the, you know, it's taking the value away from the original thing. I mean, for better or worse, you know, I mean, it's, I guess, I guess it, it kind of, you got to sum it up by saying it isn't, nothing is just one thing. And especially pop songs, like, I mean, there's, you could go on forever about this, right? Like a lot of the value of a song is, is in, is not necessarily inherent. It's not inherent in what's, I mean, I know this from experience, like, like it's not as simple as like, I wrote this song to reach out to all the other people who are suffering from depression or all the other people who are um, who were in an abusive relationship, and I'm going to connect with them. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm sending you, I'm giving you a lifeline. It's not that simple. It's like maybe I wrote a shitty song that I wasn't thinking about what it was in there, but somebody heard it and they had a use for it, and they their particular need, their this hole that they needed to have filled, this incompleteness, was made complete because of what they brought to the song. And that is not invalid. That's like absolutely valid. It's one of the great mysteries and beauties of art. So like the fact that I think, you know, like I don't like Britney Spears. I have, I don't have time for Britney Spears, but every now and then I hear, like for me, I hear, I hear, um, you know, a particular song and maybe I have a minute to admire the craft and go like, you know what? That was written that was written by a team who really knew what they were doing. Hats off, you know, somebody else hears it and they're like, 
you know, they're going through a breakup and shit, it's just fucking time for this song. And there's something that sparks in them and it's on. And I'm not going to take that away from them by like, you know, denigrating the, the thing just because I think it's shallow and stupid. It isn't just one thing. So, you know, I mean, I think it's kind of great if I could, if I could get my, kind of get my shit together in this way. This is where my memory really fails. I'm sure there are like a bazillion examples that would be really, ah, great example, a kind of goofy example. But like, uh, like John Cale, who I really worship, did this ridiculous cover of Heartbreak Hotel, the Elvis Presley song. And um, in which he literally like, like he just takes those lyrics at total face value and invests them with every like I'm feeling so lonely baby I could die and it's like it's like his interpretation of that song is like I could fucking die like you it's just like I mean he's falling apart he's like screaming and thrashing at the end of the song and it's like kind of ridiculous and campy and theatrical but it's fucking great because it takes it it's the same thing it's a it's a pop commodity of a song right it's a trifle and his interpretation of the song just takes it way over the top and it makes it you know like teenage jay thought it was like the most intense thing he ever heard like john kale is just screaming this lyric and you know maybe grown-up jay thinks like it's got this kind of real meta dimension to it like it's rad so. Yeah, I'd say Johnny Cash kind of at the end of his career started to make up. His albums were highlighted by those moments, right? I oh, mean, covering, totally. Covering Hurt and, yeah, I think in the same way, maybe not in a campy way, but in a very different way delivering that song. Um, oh, yeah. Right, I mean, that's like all those all those cover tunes are of his, like in those last Johnny Cash records, they're like, they're great because they're like, I mean, they're delivered with real conviction, you know? Mm-hmm. Let's you see. Anything? Yeah, I'm just going through the questions to see if if we missed anything because I don't want to uh, upset the uh, the folks that'll shoot us emails at the uh, if we miss anything that's important. <laughs> uh, I wanted to talk about the Hey Mercedes album because I love that. Oh, record. wild! Oh, wild! Um, wow. I'm just curious because I know you did the last Braid record, which I was I, I didn't I wasn't did not listening do the last Braid record. Oh, you didn't. No, I didn't. I did the I did that uh, reunion EP, which was oh, okay. sort of received in a kind of lukewarm way. But I didn't do the most recent one. Um, they did it with Will Yip. But did you do the? So I haven't actually did you work on any the new Braid record. Did you work on the Braid record before Hey Mercedes? Um, the Braid records that I did, uh, I did Frame and Canvas. And I did this reunion EP, and I did the Hey Mercedes record. Yeah, and I think. I mean, I'm gonna. And I don't that. remember if there's a Braid record after Frame and Canvas, honestly. According to the Wikipedia, there is not. Yeah. So there's like the compilation albums that came out after that, right? And then, so that's what I meant by the last one, like. Because I wasn't thinking in terms of the the stuff since the reunion, um, I was curious about you know that was a band that was beloved and had a a very specific following at the time, and then the Hey Mercedes album was a 
a much different turn for for Bob in terms of the sound. I love mm-hmm. the sound of that record. It's humongous guitars mm-hmm. and yeah, it's, it's much like, more monolithic sounding than braid. It's way more like, so, and that's a lot to do with Mark because Mark's, you know, Mark's way more of like, he's just like, he's a rocker. <laughs> I think, I think a lot of it is like Mark's, Mark's guitar just is huge. Like his guitar sound is huge. And his whole approach to the, is like a much bigger sound, you know, braids almost kind of delicate in a way. I feel not all their songs, but even when they're like really kind of hard charging, it's not, um, it's not that kind of big monolithic kind of Bob Moldish, you know, huge cathedral of guitar sound, you know, it's mm-hmm. like much more, it's much kind of leaner sound. So I think a lot, I mean, I do think a lot of it is like Mark's is, is what Mark brought to the, to, to Hey Mercedes. Was there any, I'm guessing, I don't know if they had a discussions with you about transitioning, um, you know, the following of braid. And -hmm. I remember this at the time did not necessarily love a lot of the people were not happy with the direction that Hey Mercedes went. Um, and it's it's so funny to me, which now it seems ridiculous, right? But, it's not you know, that different, you know? And then, and I mean, the other thing is like, okay, guess what? Your favorite band broke up, but the other guys are in a different band. So it's a different band, <laughs> you know? It still right. has some of the same things you love because it's the same people, you know? But it isn't, but it's, you know, it's kind of magical the way that, I mean, you know, I mean, people take music very personally. So, and that's the thing, like, it's beyond your, it's beyond your control. It's, it's mystifying, like, it's mystifying to me but I no longer waste my energy trying to like, you know, on, I no longer waste my emotional energy on, you know, the, the why of it, because it's just completely mysterious. I mean, I like, I don't, I mean, I, hopefully this doesn't make me sound like some kind of egomaniac, but like, so I've been playing music for a really long time and Jawbox was the first band that, I, you know, where I was kind of the songwriter in the band. And a lot of what we did was frankly, not very good. But for whatever reason, you know, it was certainly, definitely was the best that we could do at the time. And we put everything we had into it. But really, honestly, eh, you know, like, like we worked hard, we wrote a lot of songs and some of them were good and a lot of them were not that good, but it's just the best we could do, you know? And I've been in a few bands since then. And I honestly believe that I've written way better songs since then and in a lot of ways, the, the, like the, to, like, like whatever, like I've written a lot of better songs and as, and I've been in bands that are sort of, that fulfill their goals, you know, that, that have clearer goals than Jawbox aesthetically and fulfill their goals better and have made generally more, I mean, I don't want to say better records cause I'm not really trying to diss Jawbox, but in, a, in, but to me, they're better records. Like every record that I've made, is it is pretty much a little better than the previous record because I'm learning as I go. But guess what? People care less and less, <laughs> you know, like of all the, and I don't, you know, and it's not like I have no, I have like zero like bitterness about it or anything because it's universally true among almost everybody that I know who makes music. If they've stuck with it for a long time, 
and they're refining what they do and they just they tend to get better at what they do and have a deeper and richer you know uh kind of thing that they're trying to to say and they get better at saying it and people care less because the because if people were t- if 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 your band came along at a time that just you know it's just some weird ephemeral timing thing you know braid was there for a lot of people who needed that particular thing that braid had and the, and the guys in braid may not have even known what they had they may not have been aware of what they had that was connecting with people you know so it's just like everybody's a little bit stumbling in the dark even no matter how intentional they might be you know so it's like it sort of doesn't surprise me because I kind of thought, wow, here comes Hey Mercedes. Like, this is like a total package. Like, like it's such a, it's so cool. It's like the direction is so clear, you know, like that record is great. That record is, is that was not a yeah. band that was just stumbling in the dark, sort of going from one song to the next, like, Oh, we can do this now. I don't, you know, let's see we can do this now. It was like, you know, maybe they feel like they were a little bit, but the, the, it really seemed like, they knew what they were doing and they did it really fucking well. And is it quote unquote better than braid? Like, well, it's just different from braid, you know, but it's better in one way, I guess in another way, it's not as good. You know, it's just, it's just weird. Like, I mean, I don't think that they, I mean, I think, I don't, I don't think that it was so intentional for them. I think they just kept writing songs. You know, they were like braid, broke up and the rest of the guys wanted to do another band and Chris wasn't a part of it. And Mark was, and this was what they did, you know? But I mean, I loved Hey Mercedes too. I thought they were fucking awesome. It's weird to me that people had that, that there was, I don't think I was aware that there was a backlash, but I guess, I guess there was, cause you could have reasonably expected them to build on the success of, you know, the, of uh, frame and canvas because people loved that record so much. I think part of it was that band was poppier, quote unquote. Um, mm-hmm. It was a what was per, I think perceived at the time as a, a a commercial effort, which is kind of funny in retrospect because I think it right. came out on Vagrant Records, which yeah. was you know kind of the up and coming um, yeah, label it was like that kind had, of a big deal, like yeah. a music biz music biz move. If you're if you're like a you know if you were kind of quote unquote the kids at that time you'd be like you know i guess maybe what you're saying like people thought braid was kind of or the braid those guys were kind of selling out in this band this was like their band that was trying to sell out and make it big but now listening to it and and realizing it you know in in 2001 there was no that wasn't like a radio record like that was a that was a, a just a rock record no, but that, I mean, people, it, people, people said it about the last Jawbox record because it didn't sound as thorny sonically and because we had more songs, you know, as, it didn't sound as thorny sonically as For Your Own Special Sweetheart and we had more songs with choruses and it was more melodic and there was, there was basically like there was a lot more compression, you know, a kind of a more overtly kind of compressed sound that people interpreted as they interpreted all these things as the hallmarks of us trying to sell out and make and make a commercial record, which is just so laughable to me. It's just weird, you know, like, cause I was there, I know what kind of record we were trying to make, or at least I know, I know, I know what we were trying to do. And, you know, none of, 
it was none of that, <laughs> you know? So it's just, it's just very weird how people, how people take things. Sometimes it's actually beyond bizarre to me because the ways that people latch on to certain aspects of songs, um, and you're just like, I'm, I, and I'm just mystified that, that, and I, and I wish I could give you a good example, you know, but it really is like people will latch on to a certain thing that's just this insignificant part of it, but it just pushes their buttons and then that's all they can hear and, you know, whatever it might be, you know, so it's funny. But anyway, sorry, I keep interrupting. I'm sorry about that. No, no, it's okay. Usually that comes with lyrics. I think a lot of times people latch on to lyrics and interpret them like you were saying before, the way that they want to hear them, whereas you, the writer, might be like, no, that's that's not what I was going for. Yeah. Exactly. And that's that's the thing that happens a lot with the intentions. And this is what we kind of have to, have, or what we've learned, is like you kind of have to be careful about guessing the intentions of why something was created like mm -hmm. saying, oh, this is clearly this is a commercial effort. This was this was right. their chance to go after the ring. And in fact, no, this is just what the, the record they wanted to make. And maybe the influences were more obscure than you thought. But, you know, we've definitely made that mistake in the past where we've said, uh, you know, this or, or, or guessing the influence on the song where you you, right. go, you hear a song, you go, oh, that riff is totally ripped off from another band. Yeah. And then it turns yeah. out they've never even heard of that band. Right. But but we can I mean, we hedge it in. That's the way I hear it. You know, right. My, my, <laughs> the way it's, you know, the when when I hear that, you know, if I hear Nirvana, Nirvana I'm going to say to me, that right. sounds like a Nirvana riff. Now, whether they intended to write one or not, I, I, who knows? The only thing would know that. But. As a listener of it, I can't deny that I hear that similarity. Yeah, so we I, mean, just, I think it's know. just I think it's just frustrating if you're if you're if if you're the you know if you're the musician and you just are trying to communicate you know like you just have whatever tools you have at your disposal. But if you have this sincere desire to just reach somebody and then all they hear is like. Oh, you guys were listening to a lot of Helmet, huh? And you're just like, <laughs> thanks, cool, yeah, that's really what it was all about, you know? Right, right. But, um, and per particularly, you know, but but then that's like, it's the two sides, it's the two sides again, because that is the magic. I mean, a lot of lyric, one of the reasons it's so hard for me to write now is because it's always been hard for me to write, but, but now I'm just like in the past, I literally used to just do this kind of William Burroughs collage kind of thing where I would just like, I have phrases. I would just come up with phrases that felt good to sing or, or I thought, I thought they, you know, they were evocative or sounded cool. And I would just jam them together. And then kind of when I had something that felt like it had a good flow that felt good coming out of my mouth, I would wrap that around something that was really eating me up, like something personal or something political I would sort of jam that together with something that that I could that I could latch onto in the course of singing the song that that gave me like a kind of like the emotional fuel to like sing. But I very rarely thought today I'm going to write a song about subject X and then fleshed it out. Like I, I almost never did that. I had to do it the other way around for whatever reason. And and sometimes it would, it even now, like it kind of bums me out because I'm, 
because I can't tell you 100% for sure what I meant. You know, I can tell you that it was connected to a feeling that I felt very sincerely, but I can't tell you what it was always the particulars. I might, you know, be able to say, oh, it's sort of related to this, you know, this person or this experience or whatever, but really it's kind of not about that. It's, you know, it's, it's completely abstract. And so it's mystifying, but also really amazing to me that I would he have heard from people who, for whom those lyrics actually hadn't, they had had a use for my weird lyrics, you know, that was like an emotional use. They resonated somehow and like, and it worked for them. And I'm not going to take their interpretation away, you know, like there it's magical. That's the magic. Like people hear different things and they just take what they, they take what, what they need, you know? And the fact that you made something that they had a use for is like fucking great. It's like unbelievable. So, you know, anyway, sorry, man, I, I like verbose, man. So sorry. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's great. If you didn't write the, the lyrics necessarily, you know, plotting them out in ahead of time were you ever as a in terms of writing music where you were like i really want to write us i want to write some music where we start straight up with the chorus and then go into another part or you know oh, like write a song assignment. like yeah kind of like or you hurt you hear a song and you're like i really I, I never thought of starting a song that way or or using a bridge right after the first verse or something like that was was there any sort of like thought in in the songwriting process where you were actually laying the bones out ahead of time before you actually wrote the parts the only song that i can think of that jawbox ever wrote like that was spoiler but okay which was just because literally what's uh uh i'm just gonna out myself actually right now um bill and i were listening to the beatles like old beatles records um and it was, uh, it was And I Love Her. That song is And I Love Her. What you already know More than enough To cut this stupid show because of the way the vocal melody goes at the beginning with the change underneath it that I was like, Oh my God, that's amazing. We got to that. I, that's so that could just be that's, and it's only like three or four notes from the beginning of that song and with the change underneath it. And then I was just like, that's, you know, I was like, Oh, instead of doing what they did, we can go from there in this other way. And then, and then it was all about like, let's write a song. We wrote the song together and it was sort of part, like a lot of times we used to just write kind of clashing guitar parts, you know, like we'd sit down and just come up with guitar parts together, kind of playing off each other. But we were like, the form of this song has to be like really economical. And I don't think it was super intentional. Like that song, the intro becomes 
the intro comes back as the bridge, but it was very much like, let's keep it as tight as an old Beatles song, you know, because that's literally like where this change at the beginning and the very beginning of this melody is totally cribbed from. And um, so that's the only, that's like the most, that is the most direct example of plagiarism <laughs> and also the <laughs> most direct example of a formal, you know, planning, planning ahead formally. Otherwise it was really like every, pretty much everything that we wrote was always like jamming and then listening to what we jammed on and then kind of going like, aha, 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 no, 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 we got to get loud here now, you know, or that kind of like, like jamming it out thing. And then if I would write the melody and have sort of a form around the melody, then I might go back and say, we have to shorten the first verse now, or we have to come back and do, you know, add more here or something. It was always like the final arrangement was always around the vocals, but the material would always kind of come up by jamming unless, unless it was something real, obviously guitar-y. Like you can tell the ones that were like real guitar-y songs, like, like Mirrorful and, you know, but... Do you have any bands coming to you now that are maybe not playing together very much? I mean, I know like, <laughs> it's very popular to, you know, you can pretty much technically make a record without ever getting in the same room with people. Um, yeah. Are you seeing that a lot? <laughs> um, I don't, I mean, I'm pretty, I've been pretty lucky. So f I've been lucky for the most part because uh, especially the longer I've done this, I've developed a, like I'll make a record anyway. Like any way you want to make a record is fine with me. But if you ask me how I think what is the best way to make a record for a band that purports to play together and be a band, mm -hmm. um, you should get in a room together and play your songs. And that should be the basis of your, that should be the basis, the foundation of what you do. So I know, um, and so I've been really lucky that like, as I've sort of developed that preference, um, it seems like the people that I've worked with kind of understand that and they share that, they share that preference. So that's for the most part, that's really cool. But I definitely feel like more and more in the last few years, like the majority of bands, like there's been time, actually there's been times in the last couple of years, more times where I've had to talk people into playing together, you know, that they, they assume like the, there's the, the widespread assumption that everybody would do their parts individually kind of kills me. And that mm -hmm. is like super prevalent, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so it's really exciting. There's been a couple of times when I've talked to bands and they were like, definitely had the assumption that everybody would do, you know, well, you know, the drummer's going to come on the first day and I'm going to do scratch guitar, you know? And I'm like, well, you guys all know your songs, right? I mean, you go, these are not like, you're not making them up on the spot, right? You know, if once we ascertain that the material is a known quantity and that the band plays it together, mm -hmm. you know, like it's really, I've been so happy the times that I've been able to talk people into playing together. And most of the time they're happier about it too. Cause, cause I just like it better. Like you, it's, it seems, cause otherwise what you, what you get is like four people show up and then immediately three of them are just, on their phones. And that's like, I'm like, why, why don't you make music together here now? Right. Right. You know, like, right. cause that, you know, and then, and then you're focusing on things. I mean, the details, it's not like the details aren't important or anybody wants you to make, you know, like 
I don't want you to come to my studio and make a shitty half-assed record of you like slopping your way through your songs. But I mean, micromanaging every drum hit, you know, comparing it to a grid is just like a good way to like bore yourself to death, you know, Mm -hmm. and make something really mealy and shitty. I mean, it really is like if you, unless you just are really can't live up to your imagination, in which case you just got to do what you got to do. You know, maybe you're, maybe you are, your conception of what you want to do is exceeds your ability to execute it. In which case, whatever you have to do to make it correct is perfectly legitimate. You know, mm-hmm. you gotta, you gotta make the record you want to make. But if you can play your songs, you know, why not play your songs? And guess what? If you loved that take, but your bass player fucked up, your bass player can replay the part and then it'll be correct. Mm-hmm. Amazing, you know? <laughs> but in, instead of like, you have to go back to this, you know, oh, we're in the second verse, but in the second bar, you're a little bit late. Check your tuning again. Check your tuning again. Oh, no, you didn't hit that note quite right. Like, you know, like it's like an invitation to, because I've had that experience. Like usually if I start to micromanage details like that, like I get like way over the top. I get like really intense about it. And then and everybody gets intense about it. And it's just like not as much fun as playing music. And if, right. you know, like, so... I mean, and that is really like the point. It's like fun is a pretty high priority. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so have you, have you done projects where uh, maybe everybody didn't end up coming to the studio? Like uh, the drummer is going to yeah. mail the tracks, and we're all overdub here, and you can produce it. No, there's no. I mean, I haven't done a whole bunch. I've guess. I, I, I mean, I've done pretty much every which way. You know, that you yeah. could do it. And, and really, you know, like, I mean, I don't want to sound too judgmental because it really is like, there's no wrong way to go about doing it. But the thing that is, is wild to me is just the widespread assumption that in order for it to turn out good, everyone has to do it separately, you know, like, like you, like the first thing you, first thing we're going to do is make it impossible for happy accidents to occur and remove the element of communication between the musicians in real time. Let's, let's just take those things out of the equation <laughs> right now. You know, like the first thing to capture the band is to not actually play as a band. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and that like the fact, the fact that that's normal for people, like I sort of get it because most of the time now it seems like, you know, people can't afford to go to a studio where they can even have room to play together. Like so many people have to make records in their house yeah. Yeah. that, that it's like, all right, you had eight inputs. You had to do the drums that way. This is just the way it had to work out. That's, you know, I mean, it's, you're up against that. So, you know, who am I to judge you for it? But, um, but I just think there's another component where it's like, you know, people, people don't, it's like the digital world has sort of sealed the fate of this whole kind of like way of thinking, you know, that's why I was so stoked when I got a tape machine, when I got a two inch tape machine, because even though I'm, I'm tracking to two inch and it's literally patched straight into Pro Tools. So when you get a take that you like, boom, it's in Pro Tools. And then we'll do all our overdubs and stuff in Pro Tools. But the fact that it's tape changes the atmosphere around what you're doing, you know? Like when it's in the computer, suddenly it doesn't matter. It's like, oh, I fucked up. Who cares? Just use the mm. one from the other verse. Oh, that snare hits shitty. Just, just copy and paste. Oh, I played the first chorus. Great. Just use the chorus again. Like 
And so suddenly nobody's making music anymore. Everybody's just clicking and clicking and dragging. So it's kind of, you know, whereas if you have the tape machine rolling, people, there is a, there's a mindset that's like, oh, we're rolling. Let, we gotta, let's play the song, you know? Yeah. And that's way cooler. It's like way, it, it's way cooler. And it's not, it's like, I mean, yes, tape also sounds better, but it's just the, the, the thing in the air is, is, is better. It feels better for me. To, it makes it, it makes it known you're capturing a performance, right? Not just right. moving boxes around. Right. And then, but people also don't have to be uptight because they, a lot of times don't, they like, they don't understand that you can, it can still be manipulated as much as, as you could if you weren't, you know, as if you were just tracking straight into the computer one person at a time. Mm-hmm. And there's very little difference in how far you can manipulate it, you know, and correct your mistakes and all the rest of that stuff. It's, it's still infinitely malleable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just that, it's just that it's more, you know, it's, it's cool. You get all your sounds ahead of time and then people walk in and they hear a take. And if you've done it reasonably well, it already sounds like a record. So it's just more fun than like three dudes looking at their phones. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jason, you got anything else? I'm going to say Jason so I don't get to <laughs> get confused. Uh, I, I've run through my, my list here. I know. It's, it kept Jay long enough here. I think well, so. Thank you for bearing with me. I'm, so, I'm sorry I'm such a, I'm so verbose, but uh, I, I appreciate it a lot that you we, even give we a shit. Per, so. We absolutely give a shit, and I, I know a lot of people do, and talk to a lot of people about, you know, online that follow the podcast and stuff, and a lot of them are excited because you guys have been doing all the reissues. I think the the self-titled just came out like in the last um, week or so. Yeah. So that's all the Jawbox. Is there plans to uh, right now? The Burning Airlines stuff is not available on vinyl. Is there plans to make that available again? Uh, well, Arctic Rodeo did a vinyl issue of the Burning Airlines stuff, but the only you know, and they're I mean, you you guys know that label, right? The German German label. Maybe you don't know them. They're awesome. No, I'm not familiar with that label. No. Uh, I'm Googling it right great. now. Yeah, Arctic Rodeo Recordings. They, they're they like, I mean, they're they're really like, um, sorry, shit, I forget I'm in a podcast. I'm like putting dishes away. It's so not cool. Um, <laughs> uh, but they, um, but, uh, um, but no, Arctic Rodeo is this label in Hamburg and they're like, they're just excellent people and they, they, um, they really care about the music that they're releasing and they make beautiful packages. They do like incredible weird color vinyl and stuff. But the downside is that they do very limited runs. So they actually pressed um, both burning airlines records a couple years ago and they sold mm-hmm. out really fast. Cause I think they only made, you know, three or 400 of each. And I don't know if they had plans to repress them or not, um, but they did a really killer job doing them and, we have some knapsack stuff. Interesting. They do, they do a lot of Walter Schreifel's uh, kind of side project E type stuff. And, um, and they've started putting out more like it, like a lot of what they were interested in was this kind of like nineties emo ish, you know, stuff, but they're putting out, I feel like they're putting out more, um, like they're putting out this fantastic uh, French band that I recorded earlier this year. This band called Daria. 
they put out uh, the last Skeleton Key record. Do you know that band? Skeleton Key, New York, New York band. Uh, I know the name. Yeah, I remember them um, from. They were running in the '90s, right? Yeah, amazing band. Like such a cool band, and um, <clears throat> they put out the last Skeleton Key record. Um, but anyway, yeah. So they did the Burning Airlines, and then. Uh, um, but I think that's all out of print now. So I don't know how. I don't know really what their plan is. If there's much more demand, then you know, that's the thing. Like to to sell 300 records in 2015 is like you know, especially for a band from you know 15, 20 years ago, that's like a major accomplishment. Sure. Yeah, because see, the problem now is if you want to get it, one of the one of the Burning Airlines records, you got to pay like fifty dollars on Discogs mm-hmm. for it. So um, my budget doesn't quite uh, cover that. I like right. going to the to the Discord page, and I can pick up the Jawbox for like fifteen bucks. Right. Well, uh, it's, it's wild because I think you know. I mean, my my default about the whole thing is just like. I mean, it's the same. It's just, for me, it's the same thinking of like, why did I do a Bandcamp page? Because I'm just like, you know, why? Like, I don't want anybody to gamble on what I'm gonna do. I don't want anyone to lose money putting out a record of mine. You know, mm-hmm. like because I'm not going to go do a massive tour to support it. And it's just like, I just want it to be available. And in the case of Arctic rodeo, they were like, like it was very clear. They were like super passionate fans. And I knew they were going to do a beautiful job making it. And this is what they do all day long. And they, they know, they know what they can afford to do. So, so they did it and they recouped and now the record's done. But what I would not want is for like, and I, and I, you know, when Burning Airlines was together, it's funny, it was the opposite thing. It's like we talked about doing vinyl, but nobody wanted, nobody would buy it. There, there wasn't any demand. And we were like, we don't want Discord to spend more money on something that they're, they may, they may never recoup from, you know, like let's do the thing that's easy that they, that is less of a risk for them to just get the music out. And then like vinyl doesn't matter now vinyl matters, but it's still the same thing for me. I'm like, you know, with Arctic rodeo, they were super fans and they were adamant about what they were going to do and how they were going to do it. And it was very clear with discord. Um, I think if discord felt like, like they wanted to do it, they would approach me or us about it. But otherwise I think they'd have to know there was sort of enough demand that they weren't going to get into a hole with it because you know, it's 2015. It's just how it is, you know? So, so I, you know, there's no, there's no plan, basically a short, long way of saying that there's no plan to do it. Gotcha. This makes me think though, that the, the person who comes up with, you know, how Amazon has like on-demand book printing, like you you can, whoever comes up with that model for vinyl records is going to change the game because that's basically the thing that causes these records that you know you print 700 of them and then five minutes later what was 15 dollars or 20 dollars is now 75 dollars on this guy but looking at arctic rodeo i i don't know i can only assume by what i see here is that that might be part of the business plan is that i mean they're very clear it looks like up front like hey we're only doing 200 yellow we're doing 250 blue and we're doing 250 yellow red so It's That's always it. very short runs. Yeah, which puts yeah. a premium on what they can charge for it, I'm sure. And then it, it makes it valuable to the person that bought it because they know, 
hey, there's only 250 of these that will ever get made. Well, you you can still do that uh, as, as, you know, the high end 180 gram, you know, with the special colored vinyl and do the expanded package. But then if there was a way to do like the basic black vinyl, you know, you don't even have to do it at 180 gram. You could do it at a a, a less expensive version. Black vinyl. Do you even like music? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there's a, there's a huge, um, there's a lot of people who believe that black vinyl sounds better. Yeah, there is. The, yeah, there's the, a whole the, argument the about that. The quality of colored vinyl is mm. is audibly not as good. So, but there are so That's many factors that go into that that I would never. Yeah, exactly. I like, I've gone know, down that know, rabbit hole and I've been like, I got to get out of this. It, who was running the lathe? You know, like uh, right, exactly. <laughs> right. Like, but like, I mean, oh my god, this is, <laughs> I don't have time for this. I'm an adult. I can't. I can't have these discussions anymore about the quality of recording. <laughs> Uh, right no i mean it's you know it's not that's that's like it's you know i mean that's why it's it doesn't i'm 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 excited i was excited to see those records come out on vinyl because just because it's so cool the big the big packaging and stuff but i i sort of feel like i'm i'm really pragmatic about it at the end of the day like if if people want that music then you know if they have a use for that music they can find it it's still available in you know in some form and so, you know, that's, that's, I would hate to think that it just disappears forever. And if I, if it, you know, if it was a case of like, oh no, those records are gone and there was some kind of weird, you know, some uh, licensing issue that I can't, or copyright issue or something that I can't even imagine what it would be, you know, in some alternate world where the record wasn't available. And I, I would say like, oh, Wow, should be trying to at least get that back in print in some way. You know, put it up, put it up as a download or something. But it it is available. So, well, whether you like it or not, all the music services in the world (laughs) have it available. Right, Um, (laughs) right, exactly. Which I'm sure is in some ways, it I'm sure kind of nice to know that anybody in the world, if they want to, could listen to it. But another standpoint, it's like, geez, how'd that get out there? Well, that's another, it's another huge thing too. That's, there's a rabbit hole you could really go down, right? Like, does it, does Mm -hmm. it, does it just completely devalue the thing? You know, cause I think it does. I think culturally, like I, I, I believe that at least some people still take music as personally as I know the people of my generation did, you know, like, like I know that, you know, it's, I'm not going to be like an old, guy who just says like it's all shitty now you know what i mean like it was Mm -hmm. so much better before when x y or z like but i do think that model that like digital i mean i was talking to a friend of mine today who's a graphic designer and he was like he was like i burned out he's like he still does a job he's like but i'm burned out and you know when i burned out on making art is when i no longer illustrated like with paints you know when i was no longer actually painting and drawing but when it became digital files and I could just move shit around whenever I wanted and delay all my decisions, mm-hmm. I, I started to profoundly not care. And it's totally, that's totally what it's like with, with I mean, I, I catch myself skimming songs all the time, like, and, you know, and yeah. having this like real shallow relationship with something that, you know, part of it's just practical. It's like real life, but yeah. it's also the medium is the message, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. We've reviewed a couple uh, albums on this show that 
I've I've brought up the reason I'm even bringing it back out is just because I had it on cassette and mm-hmm. I was too lazy to take it out of my cassette player in the car or wherever. And I listened uh-huh. to it into the point where I sort of forced myself to like it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and now I'm like going back to say, did I really like it? Or was I just, you know, because of convenience, I listened to it a lot because I didn't feel like changing it. <laughs> Um, whereas now it's like for half a, you know, half a moment, if you don't like something, it's like next, right. Oh, that's all right. But let me get to the next, you know, and it's totally different experience in how you evaluate music. Right. And it sucks because, you know, behind that song, there may be a tortured soul crying in the wilderness for a connection (laughs) that they're not going to make. I mean, I'm, I'm putting it in a facetious way, but I actually am serious about it, you know? Well, yeah. And even some music you can't appreciate the first or third or fifth listen it takes maybe right. 10 and all of a sudden it's something clicks and you and you, you know you, it, it just you get it you know right exactly. i don't think that's possible to happen anymore <laughs> frankly right. well i mean it's yeah it's just it's just not the it's weird because it's not the it's i think it's totally possible for it to happen but but you feel weird and it's 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 that's it's a strange thing it's like a um it's like cultural uh, conditioning that you're not even aware is happening, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and, and uh, it's, it's insidious, you know, and maybe it's like an unintentional, it's, it's hopefully unintentional <laughs> byproduct of, uh, of the, of just the way information moves now. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's yeah. always so it's, it's just funny that you feel that like that it feels weird to like put the brakes on for a minute and make a and make more of an effort to connect mm-hmm. with something, you know. Yep, definitely. There's always another shiny object, you know. It's like yeah, even when a, a record comes out, I'm really excited about, and I'm, you know, have all intentions to put time into it. I, I kind of will, but then inevitably the next week something else came comes out, and I'm like, ooh, but. You know, and the next thing I know, I'm like, geez, I haven't listened to that record I was really excited about in like two months. And yeah. So it just becomes, yeah, you kind of have to be disciplined about it to not get lost. Right. Or you could just not listen to anything. <laughs> There's that too. Sometimes I'm just like, I'm just going to listen to sports talk for three weeks. Right. No, I, I recorded I recorded a band recently who were kind of busting my chops about like, about what do, what do I like? You know, like, what do I like to listen to? And I was like... They were like, what's your favorite record you ever worked on? And I was, I literally had to think for a minute. I was like, my favorite record that I ever worked on is your record that we're working on right now. Mm. What do I listen to? I listen to your record that we're working on right now. And then I was like, and Killing Joke. <laughs> and then I was like, and that's it. That's it. When I leave here today, I'm, I'm going to listen to Killing Joke. <laughs> that's pretty much always true. So, mm. I think that the, if, and Jay and I probably have both gone through this, because we started with cassettes and then moved into CDs and then the whole digital thing happened, it kind of, like you're saying, Jay, where you skip the songs quickly, mm-hmm. I've kind of enjoyed this vinyl revival, whatever is pushing it, mm-hmm. because it forces me to have a physical relationship with the music. And I think that in the 2000s, not having, a, not holding a CD mm-hmm. or, or a cassette and not like looking over the artwork and reading the liner notes kind of like distanced me from a lot of that music, which a lot of it I enjoyed, but I I might really like an album, but I don't have like a sense of like where the tracks are on the record. Right. Because I didn't look at, I didn't stare at it. 
Right. It's like syn- a synergistic, like, uh, or like, not, what is it? It's like syn- not synesthesia, but it's like, I, t- I know, I know, I totally know what you're saying. Oh, I've got a, I have a good theory for you, actually, that's sort of a tangent to that, which is okay. why, which is, uh, which is something that I've thought about a lot about records uh, that are auto-tuned and grid edited. And I feel like why analog recording and older records have more longevity, you know, um, is, you know, there is that piece that people talk about, like the sonic, like the sort of quote unquote warm thing to it. But I also Mm -hmm. think that, that if you made a record in the 1970s or 1980s, no matter how hard you tried to get everything in tune and on time and, and execute it as quote unquote perfectly as you could, there's always a margin for error. There's always some element that's not, that's not, you know, perfectly ordered. Whereas it is actually possible to perfectly order every element of every recording now. And if you do that, if everything is 100% in tune and on time all the time, and there literally is no margin for error, it's like a listener's brain just doesn't engage in the same way. It's, it's like your brain is engaged on a deeper level by the blanks that you have to fill in. That's my theory. That there yeah. are certain things, there are certain things that your brain has to account for. And it's almost, it makes engaging with the music in some sense more of a creative act. Mm-hmm. Like you, ha- you have a stake in it just to realize what it is. Whereas when everything is so clearly spelled out for you and it's, and it's coming at you just one way, um, you don't have to give a shit about it and you can actually push it away much more easily. Mm-hmm. So that's, I just wanted to share that. <laughs> that makes <laughs> sense. In the same spirit yeah, yeah. of what we were talking about. Yeah. And at, probably on a subconscious level, because you, can recognize that there's no flaws mm-hmm. that it it seems inhuman yeah whereas yeah. like the like the like your heartbeat elevates and you know rises right. and lowers whereas there's no there's no change to something that's mechanical right so it's 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 basically like listening to like your car engine or something like that it's not right it probably has more personality yeah exactly <laughs> Interesting. I think you should write a think piece for Salon <laughs> on that because that is that is the exact type of thing that they would uh, that, right they would want would... <laughs> to circle back That's, around. I don't. Right, I don't know about that. I'm not sure that that would be click, adequate clickbait. Really, I don't think it's sexy enough. You'd have but... to turn it into a, t- a top ten list, <laughs> or. Or you'd have to, it would have to be like, um, one of the things they do is like, uh, um, have you heard, you know, like, (laughs) right. (laughs) You won't believe what happens next. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There you go. go. Your life depends on reading this article. (laughs) 
we can work out all, all the details, but I think this yeah, well, the, more there. The, the main thing is that we had this we had this conversation so that we could identify all the many shortcomings of <laughs> you know contemporary culture and media. <laughs> so that we did. so that solving all these problems and reconciling all these uh, difficulties should be a breeze. Should just be a snap. Yeah, got some so. work to do, Tim. We do have some work to do. Demand, That's another demand uh, vinyl pressing. Mm-hmm. I think I, I think I got to work on that because that sounds like a good business model. All right. I wonder and, if uh, that's what I wonder if because I've read somewhere that furnace manufacturing just bought a shit ton of vinyl pressing stuff. I wonder if that's what they're part of what they're thinking. But there may be a reason why that's a completely half baked idea, though. But I bet you know. making the uh, what do you call it? The master plate. Are we creating right? It's like the hard part. Oh, but but you know maybe there's a right. That's like the expensive, cumbersome, unwieldy, like resource eating part of it. Maybe there's a way to do that now that that isn't all those things anymore. There's not very many places left that do that part. Like I think there's a lot of places that actually press the vinyl, but I don't think there's many do the uh, the plating or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I'm just a right. big idea guy. I can't get into the details. <laughs> right. So someone's got to do some homework along yeah. that yeah. way here. But uh, <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you. It's not me. <laughs> I won't be. I won't be doing that homework. Okay. Um, well, we'll we'll count you out for the for the vinyl pressing on demand project. But uh, that's all right. <laughs> all right. The main thing is Jay, just you know being part of the think tank of being present at the creation of the idea so yes <laughs> you, ha- you have to skid it off the ground you'll no, be on the masthead <laughs> anytime that's all that's all i want all right jay we were we're this has been ridiculously long but we appreciate how much time you've given us and this has been a lot of fun we've covered a lot of stuff stuff we never intended but we got there so thanks so much That was our lengthy but very interesting interview with Jay Robbins of Burning Airlines, Jawbox, Government Issue, Channels, and Office of Future Plans. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. And as always, if you have an album you would like us to check out, please head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com and hit up our request review page. That's it. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay talk with Jay Robbins of Jawbox and Burning Airplanes. 
This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay talk with Jay Robbins of Jawbox and Burling Burton. <laughs> this week on Dig Me Out. <laughs> Let's try that again. Why are you hysterical? Oh, I'll punch you in the throat, focus.